Welcome to episode 362 with my guest, Yvonne Y. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the show is part uh, anonymous uh, listener confessions filled out via surveys. And then um, the other half of the show is uh, a conversation or interview, whatever you want to call it, with uh, with a guest. Um, I made fun of, uh, well, first of all, I've shared with you guys that I've been doing this thing at night before I go to bed where I do not crave ice cream at all during the day. I don't even think about it, but for some reason, right before I go to bed, I, for pretty much the last nine months, have been eating ice cream because it just feels like a compulsion. And sometimes I can't sleep unless I get up and uh, have a a pint of ice cream. Not always I have a pint. One time it was a pint. Um, and I was talking uh, on last week's episode, or two weeks ago, I don't remember how long ago, and I was making fun of Sedona and crystals and that whole kind of stereotype. And a listener named uh, Ro wrote to me, and she said, you know, I used to think that crystals were bullshit as well, but could I send you some? And I was like, you know what? I always talk about being open-minded on the show. Sure, send me some. And so she picked out, you know, one of them is a birthstone, et cetera, et cetera. And she sent them to me. And I'm not kidding you. I I opened up the package at like, I don't know, I'm going to say 10 o'clock at night. It was the first night in memory that I was like, I don't feel like eating ice cream tonight. Was it those fucking crystals? And that was two nights ago. Last night, I felt a little bit of the urge, um, but I didn't. So what I'm saying is, uh, Ro, your shitty crystals are wearing off. Tonight, I'll probably uh, binge on marshmallow cream or ice cream. Maybe there's something to them. I mean, they work for all kinds of scientific purposes, so why wouldn't they work for us? We're water and electricity uh, and, and hair. But um, there was a guy named John Hammond who was, he's pretty much considered the premier talent finder uh, of the 20th century as far as discovering musical talent. He discovered Billie Holiday. He discovered um, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, Bruce Springsteen. I want to even say like Duke Ellington. And he would... One of the ways he was able to discover all this talent was he had a crystal installed in his car radio, and he would drive around. He lived in New York City, and he would drive around, and because of this crystal, it picked up radio signals from really far away. Like, he would discover acts in, you know, Kansas City um, because he would hear Kansas City radio because of this these powerful crystals in his in his radio. So all of that is to say, uh, Ro, you were right. I'm a jackass. Why don't I got to turn it and make it? Look at that. Um, 
I've uh, shared a lot of times that there are seem to be themes in the surveys for any given week, and this week's theme, uh, there's quite a few surveys where people discuss dissociating or uh, experiencing uh, depersonalization or derealization. And I know those of you that deal with that often feel like um, there isn't enough stuff about that. And while there's not a ton of it, in this week's uh, surveys, there's more than there usually is. So hopefully you'll you'll hear something that uh, helps you feel less alone. Okay, we're going to read some some uh, some surveys. This one is filled out by this is the struggle in a sentence survey, um, and this is filled out by Lemon. And about her depression, she she writes. Um, Seasonal affective disorder is a he- heavy gray blanket draped over my head everywhere I go. I, for years, have been calling it the gray blanket, and I I have yet to find a description that that feels better than that, so we're on the same page. Uh, About her anxiety, everyone I love will die any minute. I just know it. Thank you for that. I got a little something going on with my, uh, my bronchial tubes, if you haven't noticed. But there's a part of me that kind of likes it. Do you ever do that? You get you get a cold or something, and you kind of are like, you know, if this voice hung around, it's uh, I don't know, it's kind of exotic. Uh, this is an email I got from a listener named Kyle, and he writes, um, uh, "I want to shoot you an email in regards to what you said uh, in a recent podcast about Christmas, Christmas spirit and what it really is: uh, consumerism, materialism, etc." Um, I'm one who wanted for nothing but grew up in emotional poverty. Christmas should be a buy-nothing day. Thanksgiving should be a day of fasting. We stuff our faces for the rest of the year. Veterans Day should be a day to celebrate and work towards peace. My grandfather flew C-47s and killed Nazis in World War II, so I'm aware of his sacrifice. Valentine's should be, quote, learning to love yourself day. And Halloween should be dot, 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 free dental care day, question mark. I don't know. You get my point. And boss appreciation day should be abolished and outlawed. Thank you for that, Kyle. Laney describes her anxiety. Never being able to take a deep breath. Always shallow and fast so you're ready to run. I have to remind myself to slow down and take actual breaths. About experiencing alcoholism and drug addiction. Hope Plans for sobriety, failure, disappointment, hate myself, repeat every week for eternity. About her PTSD, frustrating to realize I've lost time again, dissociation. Play back the hour or day to piece it together, constantly keeping my mind busy to keep the memories away, never at peace. And then a snapshot from her life. About my struggle with complex PTSD, my flashbacks result in flight, Uh, And then parentheses, there are four reactions, fight, flight, fawn, and freeze. I came out of the flashback about two miles from my house at midnight. I'm always running for my abuser in them. I had to walk home alone. Thank you for sharing that, Lainey. I can't imagine how how, uh, the ripples in everyday life of of experiencing that must and must be. Uh, Traveling Still uh, shares about his depression, uh, which he experiences as dysthymia. Um, 
in giving us a snapshot from his life, he writes, I love power outages. A once clear world is now obscured. Tasks which were once easy are now difficult or impossible. People are stumbling around or just giving up on basic tasks. Power outages are like the world telling me it understands how I feel. That is a great one. I thought it was so odd when um, I just moved to California in 1994 and a week later the Northridge earthquake hit. And I didn't know any of the people in our apartment complex, but most of us were too afraid to go back in the building, so we spent a huge amount of time in the courtyard. We got to know each other, and we cooked together, and then bit by bit, we went back to our lives, and I missed that. I missed that um, bonding through crisis, and um, I thought it was weird that that... In a way, I want—I didn't want another earthquake to hit, but I wanted something to happen to bring us together. And in many ways, it was—it was really kind of my first taste of what I get in a in a support group without the barbecuing. Uh, April describes her love addiction. I adore my husband. I am sure that I love him more than he loves me. A snapshot from her life. Hiding vomit. Oh, she also deals with a bulimia. Hiding vomit in cups and dumping them out when no one is home. Desperately sucking my husband's cock in the hopes that he will continue to love me. Uh, obsessed with the five pounds I cannot lose somehow, but I know if I did, I'd be perfect. Thank you for sharing that. And that, you know, there are support groups for, for love addiction, April. Um, and there's a book called uh, Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody that is supposed to be really fantastic. Um, I got an email from a listener named uh, Kristen, and she asked a great question. She says, um, what is what should I expect in my first visit with my psychiatrist? And I wrote her back, and I said, you know, it, it really depends on the psychiatrist and on you, but just remember, uh, they're not there uh, to judge you. They're there to help you. And personally, I always let all the hard-to-talk-about stuff out so that they get a full picture and the potential is there for them to help me as much as possible and um, my advice is resist the urge to quote look good because you're you're wasting your money if you go in there and, and you know wear a mask and pretend to be something that you're not uh, Jay Hawker describes her uh, anxiety Everything is a danger. What if, what if, what if? Emotional danger is freaking everywhere. I can't, I can't, I can't. Failure and embarrassment and the worst, uh, and the worst. And I will fail and I will be embarrassed, so don't try anything new. My God, that is so dead on. The fear of change, the fear of newness, uh, the, the CGI that our brains paint about trying something new and getting out of our comfort zone. Uh, snapshot from her life. I never participated in sports or other activities in school because I was afraid of failure and embarrassment. I felt left out, though, because all my friends played sports and were in different clubs. I'm often exhausted from the, quote, face I put on to be in public or to go to social events. That face is so draining. I'm hoping that they can come up with a solar-powered face that I can wear and then I'll have a small uh, carbon footprint. And uh, there is, smiling when you're depressed is harder than benching 500 pounds. Well, I've never benched 500 pounds, but um, 
I've driven a car into a wall, and a car weighs more than 500 pounds. So stupid. Uh, Phil. Uh, what am I calling? Oh, no, his name isn't Phil. He, his, the name he used on this is, My Aunt Jenny Looks Like Phil Esposito. Fuck. God, did that make me laugh when, when I read that. If you don't follow hockey, I don't know if you can understand just how poetic that that name is. It's I got to meet him once, actually. He's a really nice guy. Um, and he describes his love addiction, breaking up with someone who was far from perfect for you in 2008 and missing them on some level every fucking day since. Thank you for that. I'm calling you Phil now. Drama Mama uh, writes about her anxiety and PTSD. She gives us a, a snapshot of her life. I told my dear friends one of my darkest secrets with my therapist present. I thought they might never speak to me again, but I wanted to live in truth. After the session, I felt the anxiety physically absent for the first time in about seven years. In that moment, I realized that I had been body scanning compulsively to locate the level and location of my anxiety. I did not know I'd been doing this until I scanned right after telling my truths, only to find it missing. It was like having a familiar component of myself missing, so I wasn't quite sure of how to even sit and walk. I felt so very different. That that has been my experience in healing with stuff is a lot of times it involves, yeah, something new, a new feeling kind of coming into your life. But a lot of times it's you feel something leave that you didn't realize was such a burden or so toxic until it's gone. And um, I think that's one of the things that keeps people from, from getting help is they can't imagine what it feels like to have something leave that they don't even know is there already. That's my two cents. And speaking of therapy, how's this for a, uh, a segue? Uh, one of our sponsors is BetterHelp. And uh, BetterHelp.com is a great place um, to do online therapy. I love doing it. And I got an email from a listener. And she, let's see, Hectic Glow is the name uh, she wanted me to use for her. And she writes, um, because you chose to advertise with BetterHelp.com and because you and your guests talked up therapy in general so much, I finally gave it a whirl. I had been trying to get help through my health insurance, but I kept getting blown off by them, um, usually busy schedule issues. I finally tried BetterHelp.com and I love my therapist. She helped me through the roughest patch. And since then, I found a new, better job closer to home. I've been commuting three plus hours a day, which was part of why there were so many hours of podcasts. It hasn't been all sunshine and roses, though. I actually have been having a bit of a rough spell this week, but I just had a session tonight and I feel so, so much better. It's not easy. It's not perfect, but I'm finally working towards getting better. Truly, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love when I get emails to begin with where you guys share that um, things are improving for you, even if it's just a tiny thing. But I also love when you um, use our sponsors and uh, and it clicks with you. So if you're interested uh, in trying BetterHelp.com, 
go to the link uh, betterhelp.com slash mental. We'll put it on our website. Um, complete a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be uh, 18 or over. All right, a couple more surveys before we get to the interview with Nicole. Uh, Neuronic Nora writes about her anxiety. Anxiety is like being in a BDSM relationship with yourself. That is Hall of Fame. Uh, Living with depression is like living a Monday every fucking day of your life. I think those are two Hall of Fame ones. We might have had the Monday one already, but... um, uh, Snapshot from her life, living with mental illness is living in fear that a serial killer is going to break into my home and kill me in my sleep, but that killer is me. Out of the ballpark, Nora. You knocked it out of the ballpark. Uh, Lily uh, shares about her depression. All I want is sleep, but God, it feels so bad when I do it. I wish I could just pause everything. Oh, my God. This one, when I read it, I was like, yes, the pause button. Then nobody's gaining on us. Oh, my God. What a dream that would be. But since we can't do that, here's what I recommend, Lily. Do what I stopped doing. I stopped shaming myself for taking naps. We don't do it when we lay down and we have the flu. Well, mental illness is a condition no different than the flu. It just expresses itself in a way that isn't as obvious to other people. And um, it, it's gasoline on the fire, shaming yourself for laying down when you're depressed. Um, maybe I should just personally speak for myself. It, it has, I feel energized when I, when I wake up after napping. And uh, and the shame's not there. About experiencing dissociation or dissociative identity disorder, she writes, the more I realize I'm not in control, the more I look at the world and realize I'm not doing these things or thinking these things or thinking anything, the more reality falls apart and slips away from me. If I don't exist, then nothing matters anyway, not even the fact that I don't exist. Um, and then a snapshot from her life. I can't remember enough of any period of my life, any particular day or time, to give a proper snapshot, and I feel that says it all. Thank you for that. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? It's really wonderful, and as much as I enjoy and also participate in self-deprecating humor, maybe tone it down a bit, question mark, for you, if not for us. Being mean to yourself all the time can't be good for you. I know for sure it's not good for me. Thank you. Thank you, Lily. And I, I, I try to keep that in mind, but sometimes it's, it's almost like the ice cream eating. It feels so, um, just irresistible to me that to not do it would be to invite agony into, into my body. Uh, ambiguously invisible, um, writes about his depression. The only way Oh, and uh, uh, he is a trans male. The only way I can accept that something good happened to me or that something, someone said something nice about me is by pretending I'm someone else. Oh, I think we get that one. Oh, my God. Um, 
somebody, somebody said to me one time in a support group, they could see that I was struggling with self-hatred. And this guy said to me, Paul, I wish you could see yourself through our eyes. And I started crying. It was, it was one of the most beautiful things that, I don't know, I don't know why it hit me so deeply, but, um, uh, about his love addiction, please love me as much as I hate my, as I hate me. Wow, isn't that, isn't that kind of the war in a way, like in codependency, is if I can just get you to love me more than I hate myself, then, uh, then it'll, It'll balance in my direction. And then about uh, being trans, he writes, Once I hit puberty, it became clear I was not the kind of daughter my father wanted. Now, as an adult male, I'm an equally repulsive son. Not that he will ever use the word, quote, son. That, I don't even know if there's a word to describe how fucking sucky that must be to finally claim your authenticity and the very person who is supposed to protect and nurture you and validates who you are at your fucking core. That is... Uh, This is an awful moment filled out by Robin. And um, uh, Robin is gender fluid and writes, uh, As a kid, I thought it was really cool that we always had a whole drawer of corks for art projects. Now I realize it goes to show how much of an alcoholic my dad was. <laughs> hey, everything's got a silver lining, right? Trauma Queen uh, describes his uh, depression uh, being uh, bipolar. There's so much I need to be doing, but nothing I want to be doing. About his anxiety, the 18,199 unanswered emails in my inbox. I wish I was exaggerating that number. And then a snapshot from his life. About a week after my ex and I separated, but we're still living together, he tried to convince me to host an orgy at our place and told me this is why it didn't work out when I refused. Fuck. Thank God you broke up with him. Holy crap balls, Batman. Um, Describes being a sex crime victim. This one is so fucking heavy. Knowing that my rapist is free... Yet I'm the one in chains. Thank you for that. And you guys write some deep shit. Uh, three quarters white noise uh, describes. Uh, I think this is a. I can't remember. This is a male or female? Because uh, I forgot to write that down. Um, I think it's female. Anyway, they write uh, about their depression. It's like I'm constantly mourning the loss of someone, but I haven't lost anyone except me, I guess. That is a good one. About uh, their ADD. It's like always having a toddler with me 24-7 trying to get my attention while I'm trying to do important things. I've named my ADD toddler Sutton. (laughs) What a perfect fucking name for an annoying toddler. Oh, my God. How can toddlers be so fucking cute and so annoying? Um, about 
uh, their anxiety like you can hear a wall of bees behind you, but you can't see them or move. That is maybe the best anxiety one I think I've read in the six years of doing the podcast. Um, about OCD, it's like the smallest things are life-changing, and you're so busy doing those things that the actual life-changing things are pushed to the wayside. Uh, about experiencing derealization, living your whole day in the state you're in when you first wake up, groggy, fuzzy. Uh, I feel like everything is merely painted on, and buildings are like those pop-up fake buildings they prop up in stupid Western cartoons. And about experiencing depersonalization, I feel like I'm playing a game and my camera is on third-person mode. Uh, and then a snapshot from their life. Um, oh, she is, uh, it is uh, a female. Uh, she sits in the lobby of her therapist's office, and he comes out and calls her back. She walks down the hallway, left, right, left, right, as I glide behind her. She sits in her usual spot on the couch, and he says, So, how are we doing today? I hit her talk button, and she says words. It sounds as if she's underwater. Her button is stuck, and she overshares, but I don't panic. There are no consequences. If something goes wrong, I'll just respawn. Depersonalization, derealization makes me feel as if I'm the controller of a video game, and sometimes I forget I'm also the character. That is so helpful in um, describing, in us understanding it, those of us that have never experienced it. Um, Thank you for sharing that, and I'm so sorry that you have to experience that day in and day out. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by when the espresso doesn't drown your de depresso. I can't decide if I love that name or I hate that name. I'll get back to you, but I do love this awful moment that uh, that she shared. I was sitting on my bed watching Parks and Recreation and enjoying a cup of coffee. My mom opened the door to my room with red eyes from all the crying. She was having one of her lovely episodes and I was already pretty tense. I paused the show and looked at her. She said, I wish you were never born. I really hope that you die as soon as possible because I hate you. I said, if you could just grab a knife from the kitchen and kill me with it, that'd be great. But if you're not going to kill me, then please stop wasting my time. I'm busy. She didn't say anything back, and I went back to watching the show. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach-clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Atkins diet in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Nicole Y, who I met just uh, a week ago. We were uh, at a support group, and I loved your share. 
And uh, I thought, I want to hear more of her story. And I think the listeners would like to hear her story. So yeah. uh, thank you for, for coming. Yeah, thank uh, you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Good. Where do we start? You're how old? Where are you from? Okay, well, I'm 35, originally from Boston, Massachusetts. I moved to New York, and then I moved here from New York eight years ago. Okay. Uh, and where in New York? I lived in Brooklyn. I lived in Brownsville. I lived in Queens, Woodside, Queens. I, I'm such a nomad. I hopped all over the place. Okay. Just like I did here. I live in the Valley, Hollywood, West Side, East Side. I'm everywhere. We should get into the map business. You could just <laughs> <laughs> do it all from Google memory. Maps. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are the issues that you have? Just to paint kind of a broad picture before we go into details. Okay. What are some of the issues that you have uh, struggled with and major life events that, that we might touch on well starting as a um a young child i was raised in an abusive household um my mother was you know prostitute stripper and i was living with a pimp boyfriend and i watched her get beat and abused and then i was beaten sexually abused and beat so then i got i had drug addiction and uh, alcoholism and uh, my dad passed away six years ago and that's when my alcoholism really mm-hmm. just started blacking out and just got really bad so it's just been a bunch of like trauma like a lot of ptsd mm-hmm. from the childhood and um, I'm in the music industry, and then there's a lot of PTSD from that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, being a female in the world, you know, it's just a lot of a lot of um, abuse. Yeah. And you're a dancer. I'm a dancer, you're rapper, a singer. Yeah, I'm, oh, okay. a, I'm an artist. You know, oh, okay, as well, musical so artist. You write your own. Uh Write your own yeah, music yeah, yeah. and your own lyrics. And, I write all the lyrics, yeah. and I've as I've grown. You know, my artist name now is Blue Nile, and I, I I've grown from every like when I was once Feminem, like when my stage of like I was doing hot drugs, like when Eminem was out, and mm-hmm. I was like rattle rapping and just angry, and I put put it all my all my pain into my verses. So all my music is all real life and all of my you know part of the story. So it used to be Feminem. <laughs> and, and feminine yeah you all right is that <laughs> yeah how, you, is that how, how did you spell it um feminine how did i spell yeah. it honestly i was so i was all drugged out that was okay. just like in between girl groups i was i was okay. signed with a girl group called epiphany like i'm just mm-hmm. as the artist name has like i went from voyage to feminine and then and then that died and then blue nile was born in new york uh two words blue nile yeah b-l-u-n-y-l-e yeah okay um boy so much to talk about yeah so much to talk <laughs> yeah, about yeah i know i don't even know i've got like a trilogy of books i want to yeah. write because i don't i'm trying to figure out how to like even express it all yes, <laughs> yes. um you're also a person of uh color yeah. um i imagine at some point uh that should be touched on in your in your story i never yeah. really know when it's pertinent or not because i feel like that is really up to the person who's sharing mm. but um uh well, these I, day and age it's know. pertinent as is as, as, that's awful. what i feel like, like i'm dealing with a lot of support groups i go to and even just you know i don't know what's happening with what's going on but a lot of racism is coming out of people that i thought were really cool before even just yeah. saying wise wise comments you know like why is all of a sudden if i wanted to see this see the black people whatever he said i would go to the apollo do you know the apollo i'm like does he know i'm a black woman like did this man this white man just say this to me which i have i'm white and black you know like i don't see color and i was like yeah i've performed at the apollo like and i was just thrown away and i turned into an iceberg and he must have felt it because he moved seats and i'm like really what wow. wow he did he this just happened last week it made me livid where where were you that this happened the, at a support group at a oh, meeting. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, I, I suppose that is a great um, 
example that support groups are people are there to get better mm. but they're still sick people 100 percent. that's what i had to remind myself and that's what you know i have a sponsor in one of my groups she's like you know he's a very sick man and i wanted to you to just keep keep be, be aware you know because he can be cool but his his twisted jokes he's very very sick so i didn't take it personally i allowed her to bounce off because luckily now i can have a bit compassion because i understand we're all mentally ill in yeah. some ways and some people just don't have like self-awareness at all i'm yeah. like really that was just crazy. It's kind of mind-blowing when you meet somebody that you you get the feeling they have never put themselves in somebody else's shoes. Right, right. Or they have in just such a egotistical, like, ignorant way, you yeah. know? Because yeah. he seemed just, like, I, I bonded with him, and he seems cool, but then it's just kind of like bipolar, like, stuff, stuff you know, like a mm. complete other side came out, and I'm like, oh, okay. Wow. Won't take that personal, but you pissed me off, bro. Okay, yeah. I guess I took it personal. I'm black. Like, do you know you're talking to an African-American woman? Like, what's wrong with you? Those are my people. Like, okay, whatever. <laughs> so, uh, let's, uh, what are some of your earliest memories? Um. Uh, earliest memories is dance. I, I started dancing at, when I was age of three, and and my mother was so beautiful, and she always had potties at the house, and all you know, she was you know drug dealer and stripper, and all the all the all the gangsters she was surrounded would come to the house. I was in the strip club at the age of three, so I remember seeing titties everywhere, <laughs> and I just remember like old Chinese like kind of mafia dudes like giving me hundred dollar bills, and like it was kind of an interesting life, you know. It's very much so like a, honestly, I've never seen a movie like it. That's why I'm really inspired to create and i'm in the arts of all sorts because i want my mother to write a book because she survived like prostituting in new york city at 13 years old going from wow. boston yeah my dad the pimp found her at 13 and she d- didn't have me till 20 and she wasn't even supposed to have kids because she had so many so many uh, miscarriages abortions she was beat to death like near death so many times oh my god her story and that's like i I'm, i have compassion for her now because i was so angry at her for so long yeah but now it's my best friend she's my more my little sister than my mother but yeah isn't that weird sometimes when uh the you feel almost a maternal or paternal yeah. uh, feeling towards I kind of she I was her protector like I, I wanted to plot to kill this uh pimp that she had living with us like Dell the one who molested me and um you know took my virginity away when I was seven years old and beat me and I was beat silent you know I was scared to tell on him because I thought he would hurt my mom so I didn't even tell my mother until I had to move cross country to California is when I saw started seeing a therapist realizing like I got to get some of this out she's like you have to tell your mother and I told I was scared because my mother was suicidal and I didn't want her to kill herself you know like I, she tried and i knew she was trying so i had to tell her and just you know she had a breakdown of course because she I, she didn't know that was happening to me because she was always out making money and doing what he told her to do wow mm-hmm. first time i did cocaine i was like five or six because i found it under my mother's bed maybe i was six or seven because i remember dare from school that's how i knew what it was <laughs> and i would just see them all passing it around on trays and i would wonder what is that I found it under my mother's bed and I touched it and I touched my face and I didn't even know how I knew to do that but my, my whole face went numb. I didn't snort it. I just put it to my mouth and I, everything went numb and I cried myself to sleep on the bathroom floor and I like that is such a vivid memory and I'm like, wow, that's the first time I tried cocaine. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> it wasn't like Drew Barrymore but like it was, you know, it was a different way but that for me was my first initial contact with it. It was like, wow. <laughs> it, it's amazing too how I'm guessing normalized all this was for you because it's all you knew at that age. Yeah. At what age did you begin to go, hey, my childhood is maybe not like other kids? Um, Honestly, when, okay, my Nana, my mother's mother, she was the only normal memories. And then 
the my my Greek side, my mother's family, they all had my uncles, you know, they had money, they had, you know, construction companies they have, but they cut my mother off because of her choices and they're racist, you know, you went with a black pimp and so I saw like I lived a double life because my mom also had an told told me that another man was my father to protect me from my real father. So I stayed with him in Dorchester on the weekends. And then I would be in Linfield sometimes. My uncles were trying to adopt me from my mother. So like I saw what these people were living over here and I came up. So I, as a young age, I got the contrast of like wealthy suburbia. And then I would go back to East Boston and then Dorchester. So as, but when I got older, not until I moved to California, honestly, because in, it was kind of cool. It was like a badge of honor because my mom was a gangster. You know, she was, and my my father was in a notorious pimp in Boston, and the whole family were just. It was kind of like Scarface. As you're as you're a child, you know, you're looked at as you're cool. Oh my God, you're you're Jones. Like what? That's that's the coolest thing in the world. You know, I I was looked up to because they terrified my family. So for a while, I tried to sell drugs. I was awful at that. I did them and gave them away. And then I tried to have escort service. I have such a big high. I would just talk these girls out of it, and like it was just <laughs> awful. But like I thought that was life, and I got signed for music really young. So I started, I guess when I had a nervous breakdown at the age of 20, I realized that the, probably the drugs were bad, but I still didn't even think that the lifestyle was bad because I was trauma. so, yeah, mm -hmm. I was so into it. So not till recently, like moving to cross country to really unpack the having therapy and unpack all of my mother's stuff, realizing that's her story and not mine and telling my mother about it, her being like, what do you mean? What's wrong with that? I'm like, mom, like. I don't have pal like I'm I don't have anybody to look up to. You had money, you had like you had it, you know, you know, you were feared. No one would ever fuck with you. This and that. I'm like, "Mom, this is not an Al Pacino movie. This is life." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she still doesn't get it. She still thinks like that's the coolest thing. Like I protected you. You you were a boss. The people if you knew who had your back. I'm like, "Ma, this is my life. Like I just wanted like you to do your my homework yes. with me, so, which you never did, you know?" Uh, <laughs> so your father was uh uh, the her her first pimp yes her okay. first love first pimpy founder yeah and he was a powerful person in that extremely powerful the most powerful of this family and when you say his family you mean his genetic family yeah or, or, oh, yeah. okay yeah they're uh, all so, they were uh, all yeah so they're all gangsters yeah all okay. of them um and I assume a lineage. A lineage. It. The whole family. Wow. The whole tainted blood. And I thought I was tainted for a very long time. I was like, I just have fucked up blood. Like, I'm just going to be... Oh. I literally would morph when I was around these people into something that I wasn't. And then, like, I would get out of it and be like, the fuck is this? It was twisted. So twisted. And like there, there was a lot of incest with them. And, like... He was raping, he was raping my sister and my sister got pregnant from my cousin. Like, I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, it shit made me crazy. Like, I had a fucking breakdown, nervous wow. breakdown from the shit that I was witnessing. I was like, this is real life, ma. And then thinking, knowing what my mother went through, learning what she did, it, ugh. It if was it, twisted. If it were an episode of Cops, it would need to be a special episode. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, there's not. I, I even even Den, and Denzel watch movies I've seen that don't have the, the the memories I have in my head. So I'm like, I've got to get it together and write a script because yeah. I've got my mother's story. Her, I try to have her write a book, but she's not too like she can't really write. She's kind of dyslexic. Share share some uh, some memories that are bouncing around in your in your head. Um, well, just the women, you know, like the poor women, the, the, the sex workers and the prostitutes and just how hurt they were and, um, you know, how manipulated and just 
just magnet. They just these, you know, all the black men. They're so beautiful in, my, in the family, and they just had these women under a spell. How how did how do they get that way? Do, do they read their needs and give them what they want to hear? Yeah, it was like an Britain. it's just an innate charm that you know these men have on these streets, and it's like especially the like I don't even know. It's it's just kind of scary. It's cultish, honestly, because you know you you're powerful. They're beautiful, perfect bodies. You know they work out. They make sure and like I don't know. These women just want to be loved, and some of them just really like sex too like i would talk to them about it i'm like really they're like yeah i just like sex i use it to make money and they were all hurt they had no other skills and they just thought they were loved and this made them love and they had the power of being with this man even though they would be beating to bloody pulps nearly every other day i'm like what well you know even if you loved sex there's a difference between loving sex with someone you choose right and somebody you need money from I, I would think that that would be a vastly different experience and that you'd have to go retreat to someplace inside yourself to be able to deal with that or, that's where or, all the drugs came in and yeah. i remember being at the um at the massage parlors because my family they own a bunch of massage parlors and i would be there and at, at times they used me to get girls you know because i'm a i'm a free spirit i'm definitely a gay woman but i like men i love men and now that i've done more healing i trust men but i've only really been in love with men because of probably all of the men that i've been around my entire life mm-hmm. so like they would use me to get women for them and they they turned out all my friends like high school friends i went like they all turned and one of my friends actually wrote a book and she was kidnapped into sex trafficking for like nine years and she's just been on the news in boston and all that i'm so proud of her because she got out of it but like it's just a it's just appealing i don't know what the mystique of it was or you just feel so weak then you feel lost and i don't know these men just with this charm just would get these women and i'd be like and i had it too and i'd be like what the hell is this this is like the devil i don't understand you know it just was, how, it they're, was weird. how they're bringing you in you mean yeah yeah, yeah. And not get even bringing me spell. in but i naturally like was like i would get around them and i warped into them it was really scary like you wanted to please them yes even pe- though yes, you the even though you pleasing. hated them on on a certain level i wanted to be a part of i wanted my dad to love me i wanted you know to be a part of, i always wanted family you yeah. know that it seems like that must be one of the things that they that they prey on that they um they they give you the impression that they see you and get you on a level that the rest of the world doesn't mm. and then once they win your trust and, and I'm basing this on the way other predators get their prey yeah. be it a controlling boyfriend or girlfriend yeah. or a pedophile you hear over and over the thing that that they do is they they're the knight in shining armor mm-hmm. at first they give you they see you and get you in a way that nobody else does mm-hmm. they isolate you from anybody that's going to tell you you know uh down the road this person is dangerous yeah. and then they chip away at your self-esteem they mm. make you question yourself mm-hmm. and they get your esteem down to a level where you believe that you have no other choices yeah. that this is what you deserve in your in your life yeah and absolutely it, and it's and it sounds like and then the fear you know the fear of um what this person is going to do if you if you leave them or you tell the police oh, or, yeah, or whatever pistol, they were pistol whipping women all the time and yeah. like you know just it was just awful you yeah. know and of course that the fear of death was definitely very vital you know yeah, yeah. um so um yeah back to back to where we uh we were uh mm-hmm. some memories that were flashing through 
uh, you're, they were turning your friends out. Um, you, um, we talked about, uh, you being three. Was there anything between, um, when you were, you were a kid, you know, you were that little kid, uh, and when you got to be in high school and started, uh, I don't know what the, what the word for it would be when things went to a different level with your drugs and stuff. Well, how they went to a different level of drugs because I, um, I I started doing music and I was really I was in a group and I was really you know naturally talented and I we got we got signed and we were opening up for we were tour, touring for Ja Rule 112 like a bunch of people and they were putting champagne ecstasy in the champagne bottles and I didn't know. So I really got turned out that way, and I was dating a, a girl. The first girl, I, I my, the girl in my group, I was hiding. My first, my first record deal was with a girl group, and the first girlfriend I ever had, I was hiding her. Was in the girl group, but then I met this girl I really loved, and I so I betrayed the girl group, and that caused so much drama. So we fist fought, and the girl that I fell in love with was a drug dealer, and she was in with some people, and then I, again I became in with the wrong group and had big drug dealers, and then that's when I, she did cocaine, so I did it to spite her, and then my addiction, naturally, it's definitely a family disease. I didn't even know it, but looking back now, I can just see how, I once I did it, it was on, the game was on. As soon as it got in my system, I was like, oh, this is how I can be superhero and not feel anything. Wow. And, <laughs> and, and I imagine the number of triggers in your life, things that get you into a state where you need to escape. Yes. Oh, oh yes. my God. So when I found that and I felt that, and it, like alcohol, it wasn't really at first. I didn't like it until I started doing cocaine. I didn't like mm-hmm. the taste of it. I hated it. My mom always had Hennessy and cocaine in the house, but like I didn't take, you know, I wasn't into it. And, but when I did the cocaine, I wanted a drink, you know? Oh yeah, it's the dimmer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it gets a little too bright. Yeah. You know, let's, let's dim it with a couple of drinks. Yeah. Oh, it's a little too dim. Mm-hmm. You know, let's brighten things up with 100%. a line of, a line yeah. of coke. Yeah. Um, so go back, going back to you being a, a, a little kid, um, give me some more, uh, snapshots, not, ne- not necessarily of, of, you know, something that's, um, um, you know, graphic and, and, and dramatic, but internally, mm-hmm. what was going on inside you, your view of the world, your view of yourself, things you remember taking in and thinking, oh, so that's, this is how that works, or this is my, my importance or lack of importance. Yeah, well, I definitely immediately, I didn't, my mom had no self-worth. So then I had, she had no power. So I definitely felt powerless. And like for ever since when my, when Dell was in there beating me and chasing me, I, I just, I can remember him and it was a little two bedroom apartment and like the project. So it wasn't even, I would, he would chase me around this little bedroom and just be like slap my thighs too. He only hit my legs so that my mother would never see it, you know? So I just remember, and I remember, I just have vivid memories of him beating her and like there was blood on the because she hit her head on a on a weight and I could still see that blood and I, I, I contemplated how I was gonna kill this guy. Like what am I gonna do? I had a knife by my bed at sometimes and I was like, I'm gonna kill him. And I think I told my mother and I don't know what how he got out of there, I really don't remember, but God is good. I just prayed. I always had a higher power and I just stared at the airplanes and music. Like I just was always writing and making my mother get me any book. I was very introverted, you know, I was very um 
shy. I didn't speak, honestly, the music. Music made me, help me speak. Like, I have my mother, one of my mother's fellow, she was stripper, like stripper girls who was a close friend. I saw her years later and she was like, you know, I was so worried about you now. She, they called me Mumu when I was little. Mumu, you never spoke. Like, she would try to take me to like downtown Boston to get some vegetables and fruits to do some normal stuff while all the strippers were hungover and going to do their lines to get back up for work. She would try, you know, and she was like, you never talked. I was traumatized silent. Like, I was just so quiet. I was, I just had it all boiling inside of me. And then when I was like going as a performer, woof, it came out on stage. Wow. Like I'm a firecracker because I held so much in for 22 years of my life. What do you, what do you think or what do you remember some of the things that, that came out? Oh my God. I mean, that came out like physically or like physically, uh, verbally. Uh, emotionally, I mean, mentally. When I, when I started rapping, like I started singing, I sing and I rap, but rap, hip hop really saved my life because it was just, they were telling my story, first of all, about getting out of the projects and an inner city child and, you know, going, going to school and having heroin, like the syringes everywhere and, you know, hanging in crack houses with boyfriends, you know, and I, I mean, I wasn't sleeping around because I was terrified of that, but like I was definitely met older men, like, you know, like doing things that were inappropriately, you know, but I just, I just remember just having writing it down when I learned how to write a rap and writing that and then I just wrote my life and then I just it was on and I just just I just was a rap like I just rapped and I just wow and I was written up as like the female DMX in New York because I was just but I was blacking out and I was like the energy like is I'm a lightning bolt I what and now I'm more I'm blacking I'm, out on stage yeah because yeah. I was drinking all the time and just you know no mm. control and like so it was a lot of people didn't know how to take me in because it was like yes. what the hell was that you know like damn that girl is ill but i don't know what the hell that is like what is that like who were your influences who did, who did you look up um, to well biggie smalls and nas and jay-z and eminem and um Aaliyah and and prince and michael jackson like a combination of all that you know mm-hmm. And um, Whitney Houston and um, the New Edition. I was in a female girl group, and we were the female New Edition. We were touring, touring open for Neo, and um, so like Boston, you know. And I did a lot of work with Bobby Brown, and and it was so sad to, and to see him and what he was going through, and with the drugs. And we'd be in the studio, and he'd be, you know, going outside to smoke some crack, and I'd be like, damn. And I kind of just I, I understood, you know. And that's when I was just stuck in it, and that's why I was using drugs just like everybody else, because so much pain, and like that's we just that's what we do. We just fucking numb it until it, it kills us, or we find a program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, when you see musicians committing suicide, you know a lot of people are like, well, you know, why would that person kill themselves? And uh, you know they had money and fame and this and that. And I I, I think people who have have not experienced um, getting what you dream of and realizing it doesn't fulfill you, mm. that is a scary fucking place. It's the emptiest place. It's the scariest place because then it's like now you have everything at your disposal and people will do whatever you want. And it's it's a problem because as a person, you know, I'm blessed to be, like being a beautiful girl is a gift and a curse. Yeah, I, I'm definitely lucky. But like then everybody's coming at me in every single way, in every which form and giving me whatever I want. I have no no structure, no rules. Like, you know what I mean? And it's just a, it's just a, just a time, it's just a, a waiting to blow up, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just it's, can you can you be more specific? I mean, 
like you just said, like when I got my record deal and then I'm opening up and touring and then I'm a local, then I'm famous in Boston. Then I'm like, then I'm just, now I'm in London and, and I went and I'm in London and I was miserable. I was in that phone booth calling this girlfriend. Like I didn't even want to go to Paris with these girls. I hated them, but that, that's how miserable I was. Like I had my, like everything was coming true and I literally gave it up because of the trauma that I remembered, like what I witnessed in high school, what I started to understand about my mother's life and the pain that I had from the childhood. Like it all had to come out. And it was just made me depressed. I couldn't even do it. I, I mean, I had to, I had to lose it all. And now, thank God, like I'm regaining it. But if I, I had to, just like you know, Britney Spears publicly. If I was, if I just didn't get that big, but the same thing happened, yeah. you know. It's yeah. that's just terrifying, <laughs> and you know, people don't understand. But it's it's painful, and just because all your dreams come true, that doesn't mean anything. No, because that <laughs> that and it's it sounds like such a cliche, but the outside things. Do, cannot bring you peace. It's Not just a different set of problems. Yeah. And yeah, there's a convenience to uh, having money or, you know, having your face in a magazine or, right. or, or whatever. But, um, it is, I, I got to that place, um, when, when I was working in TV where I had security and, and, you know, some money and time to spend it. And I was thinking about suicide 50 times a day. And it was actually a blessing that I, it, that it was so, clear to me that something was wrong mm. because if i hadn't had those things i might have just thought well it's because i haven't achieved anything right right and the fact that i had achieved something made me realize something is is wrong i should yeah. go talk to a psychiatrist yeah and that was the the beginning but back to what you were sharing so you were having a relationship with uh, uh one of the girls in the group yeah um and she was she your your first uh, she was my first, yeah, and I didn't know anything. Literally, I was 16 in the 21-plus clubs. I saw this girl, and I liked her lips. I didn't even know. I kissed her. It was so strange. It came out of nowhere. I don't even know. I never, like, I remember being young in dance class, and I, I would look up at the older girls, and I, and now looking back, I totally was in love with Aaliyah. Like, it was more than just, like, iconic. Like, I definitely had a crush on her, but I was so thinking of saving my ass. I, I never thought about a man, never thought about a woman. I never even cared that I didn't have a dad. I was like, how the hell am I going to get the fuck out of here? music is my ticket out period like and but so when i met this girl i don't know what it was it was because she was in the girl group and i wanted to do music and whatever it was and it was, i was 16 years old and she was probably 25 at the time she was way older than me and thinking back on it now now that you are you know older than that or yeah i'm 35 old, now looking back on it now what kind of eyes do you view that with Oh man, now I just see the hurt little girl that I was, you know, and just, I was just so lost and I was looking for love and just anywhere. And I definitely didn't trust men. So I saw this woman and I was like, maybe it's going to be in a woman. And she, I hit her as a best friend. I just, it was a best friend relationship as I was in high school playing high school basketball. And it was just my best friend. I wasn't going to come out in high school. Like I didn't know. And I was, I didn't really, there wasn't a lot of lesbians. I never saw a lesbian really around back then. And you know, um, so I really didn't know about it. I never, never said I thought it was wrong and know it was right. Like I didn't have an, any perception on it. <laughs> um, if you could go back and talk to yourself at any age, what ages would it be? And what would you say to yourself? Um, it would probably definitely be my 20 year old self because that's when I had my nervous breakdown. And that's when I was just like doing drug. Like I was just hanging with all the after hours kids, like running, like I was just doing the most insane stuff. And I would have just hugged her and just let her know she's safe. Cause I felt so, I was just terrified. 
I was so scared and I was just trying every drug in the world with all the wrong people and just running amok. And I just wish I could just hold her and hug her and just give her a little guidance because I had nobody to tell me and like nobody stopped me. Nobody said this is wrong. Like not one person thought there was that I had a problem, which was insane because I was like 115 pounds. I'm 5'10". I was probably 5'7 at the time or whatever. I don't know. Doing all sorts of drugs. Like I was bulimic. Like I was sick and I just wish I would just, you know, I would just somehow just like, it's going to be okay. Like you can like somehow give myself some love because I didn't love myself at all. I hated everything about myself and the life that was shown to me. So, so let's get to how that came about. Mm. What, what chance? I think we got a pretty good picture of what, what it was like. Yeah. Right. Wow. um, (laughs) What, what changed things? Um, what changed things? I, I, someone gave me a book. I was <laughs> in Staten Island with some Wu-Tang members and one of the managers gave me a book by Gary Zukav, The Seat of the Soul. And I read this book and this was probably, um, this was the first thing that opened my eyes and it was just like, I still have this book <laughs> three times, but it just talks about the resonance of your heart and like, it's just it, like, wait, inside my, wait, I'm, I can feel inside? And that sparked where I started getting to quantum physics and I started to, I think what the bleep do we know came out way before the secret. And, um, I, I, I watched that when I found that DVD around the same time, I watched it over and over every single night, like for probably two years. And I, I just something I share, did. share some of what you gleaned. Well, in what the, in this, in the, what the bleep do we know, it just was showing how, well, first of all, there was this experiment of the Buddhist, there was, um, some monks or some scientists that did, I had a monks bless the water. Have you heard about this? Mm-mm. They had monks there was an experiment when they wrote on the bottles of water um they put you know dye hate da 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 the molecules of the water literally transformed to toxins and literally like changed into acid and then there was another bottle blessed by a buddhist monk and it was love and literally was crystallized beautiful form that struck a chord in me that was like okay wait i can change this i think just in watching that of how like everything everything that i don't know what the bleep we know just allowed me to see that there's something so greater than me that was bigger than me like mm-hmm. i had i had a connection to god but it yes. just got me through i just yes. didn't know what it was i didn't know anything but learning the scientific and the universal stuff yeah. really struck my in- intellectual like side yeah and i was like wait a second i think i might have a chance yeah <laughs> and and i think that and I completely agree. I, I view it as chemistry. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't wrap my head around, a, you know, a dude in the sky with a beard, mm-hmm. but I can wrap my head around chemistry and electrons and mm-hmm. positive and negative charges and pathways opening up based on chemistry. Yeah. And, and my, changing the neurons in your brain. Yeah. Um, and my experience has been that when I give out positive energy, I I have better opportunities in my life. I have more peace and the way I interact with the world when I have peace um is there there are such moments of beauty mm. and transcendence. It's hard to it's hard to even put into words. Um but it's difficult sometimes to to remember to stay in that place. Yeah. When if I feel like I'm being abandoned or I'm in fear or uh, I future trip mm-hmm. and 
you know, I, do we ever future trip in a way that isn't a horror show or grandiosity? You know, yeah. Like I, I've always looked up to Oprah. You know, she's always been like kind of a role model for me. I'm like she, and she was raped, and she like just her story. I, I, ca- I caught mentors, and I took these mentors, and I made them my, you know, like my kind of mom and dad. You know, I didn't know these people, but I just hung on to them, making it out. Like Jay Z made it out of the hood. The Mozzie Projects, like I, he Jay Biggie, like made it out. This is way before they obviously Biggie died, but like. And Oprah, you know, and she was like, whoa. And that was a positive side to it because I'm not a, I'm, I'm a very positive person. I'm a conscious rapper too, which has been very difficult for me because I, that's why it's been harder for me to go mainstream. Um, but now it's opening up like with the level of the world we are, which I'm so, it's just God's timing. Timing is always everything. And honestly, where I am mentally is, is much better now for me to get to reach the capacity of success I probably can because back then I would just would have died, you know? <laughs> you know, uh, in, in my mind, uh, there are few people as important as Oprah in the history of talking about emotions in our country. Yeah. Um, and talking about difficult subjects in a way uh, that wasn't a sound bite or, you know, somebody's on for five minutes to talk about this. Um, her, her show really changed, really changed uh, America and really got difficult conversations started mm-hmm. um yeah i watched that show and i just she she just inspired me you know and this all of it i don't know you know i i've always felt a high presence and i had a lot of death and i feel like i have a lot of angels like my own my uncle died it's i was like 16 years old and i didn't cry and he was like the man in my life my mother's brother and he overdosed he found him in the car with heroin with needles in his arm you know and i don't know i think that i just after that i think i don't know you know i the spirit spirit i just always felt spiritually led by something bigger than me that would just motivate me and I don't even know how I would just allow it you know I was just so open and I would just pray like and I was praying I don't know what I was praying I was just like God you know I don't I don't you know please like just please show me how to get out of here like I this God I cannot end up like my mother I will not be my mother like I can't <laughs> you know I believe that there that that state itself is a higher state right. that state of of uh letting go mm. and being open mm-hmm to where help may come from. Yes, absolutely. Instead of manipulating or, you know, forcing your will mm-hmm. on on people. Um, it, it, something changes. You know, the day that I got sober 14 years ago, I, I sat up in bed and it was no different than any other day. But for some reason that day, I said out loud, God, help me. I mm. can't do this anymore. Yeah. And uh, I was not and am not a religious person. Um, it's, it's science mm-hmm. for me, you know, I relate to that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, back to, back to where we, uh, where we were, um, where were we, you were, uh, <laughs> how things, how things changed. Yeah. They changed how they changed. Um, I just, and then I got some more mentors. Like there was this beautiful man. I, I started a network while to like your, um, a talent agency and like some stuff. I just was always entrepreneurial, you know, from the mm-hmm. streets like I, and, um, but I met this man who also believed in me and I would always meet some, a man of God somehow that he had a family and he would let me stay with him and like, just try to help me. And he gave me another book, which was, um, purpose driven life by Rick Warren. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I did that and it was just slowly, my soul started opening up to more like reading, reading the Bible and not, not being religious at all. Cause I'm just clearly a complete rebel and rogue, but, like mm-hmm. just my form and God of my understanding which Being is open showing to up anything open that, to that anything and everything that yeah. was light and love and not the darkness that I saw yeah. you know 
And as long as it felt like it was something positive and uplifting and not negative and just binding, I was with it, you know? And so give me some examples of, of those other than these, these books that, that you were reading or were, the, were those the things that led you to finally a- ask for, uh, help or go to therapy or um, well moving cross country yeah those books were absolutely what moved me opened me up and i moved to new york thinking new york would save me from boston and that was all and it didn't i just and i was still that's, al- that's almost hilarious yeah it's hilarious right that's, that's, <laughs> but that's what i thought i'm like yeah. I'm to, it's time to move to new york uh, I can't. i'm tired of the dirt <laughs> dirt and the crime and the anger so now i'm just gonna go to even bigger dirt and crime and anger in new york city um, so I moved, I moved cross country. I moved to Los Angeles. My Nana, okay, my Nana got cancer. My Nana is my best friend. God bless her. She's still alive. She beat cancer. 2001, I had a nervous breakdown. And that's also when she got ovarian cancer. And, oh my God, um, that killed me. She survived it, thank God. Um, but I moved to New York. And then when I was in New York, she had got lung cancer. And I was like, fuck that. I'm moving back to Boston and I'm taking care of you. So I moved back to Boston and she made me a shirt that said, live your dream. And she said, you're going to Los Angeles. You get out of here. You go to California. I'm going to survive. And I could cry even thinking about it. Oh my God, I love her so much. And I was there and she didn't want me to stay. She wanted me to go. So I was, I listened to her and I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. So I sold everything and I flew here with, the, with, the, with backpacks. And with my partner at the time, we were actually in a duo called AM Blue. And um, I flew here with her and I, 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 I flew us both here and we just, yeah, in Los Angeles now being here and I went right into West Hollywood bartending and performing everywhere and I had, you know, still had contacts in the industry so I instantly was in the scene and performing and rocking, killing Hollywood. Like I, I said, I came here and I just set on fire and um, she went back to New York, the ex, and, you know, it wasn't for her and I started, to, my dad died. My dad that I met when I was eight years old, who is not my biological dad, but um, honestly, actually, I truly don't know. I still need to do uh, 23andMe because my mother, you know, it's still complicated as, as the fuzz, which one is it, George or is it Eric? Eric is the one who I met at eight. He's not the bad. He's the one that my mother actually loved. And he was a pimp too. He lived a double life. But I met him when I was eight years old and I lived with him on the weekends. And, but when I was 20 years old and I had that breakdown, he said, you know, I'm not your dad. You have to go get, find your, find your other dad. He wouldn't let me come stay with him. So long story short, he was the, he was the man there for me and he died. He overdosed six years ago. Mm. And that so made me, okay, now he's dead. And, um, I started drinking. I started blacking out and I, I like, I need therapy. I was like, I need some help. I, I got, I think it was a partner, like an ex. I have an ex, the ex fiance. And she was like, you know, you remind me of my mother. She, her mother's an alcoholic. She was from Oklahoma. I think seeing from her eyes and seeing her life, she was so normal. She taught me how to trust. She taught me like love. And I was like, okay, I'll get, I'll get a therapist. And then that's when the therapist, I told her just a little bit of what I, you know, a little, you know, just a little bit. There's so much more. And she's like, honey, you need to tell your mother this. This is the first step to your healing. Your mother has to know. You can't try to save her. You have, and I was like, I'm like, what if she wants to kill herself? Like, I, it's going to break her. No, that's not your responsibility because you have to save yourself. And this is how you're first going to save yourself. But mm-hmm. by coming, being open and honest, and you've got to confront your mother because you're mad at her. She didn't protect you. So I did that. And that's opened the can of worms of endless worms. <laughs> sure. Can you share uh, a little bit of that moment? With your yeah, mom. I, I remember I, I was still smoking. I was smoking weed religiously, California weed. Oh my god! And I was smoking on this, the top of the hill in Hollywood. And um, I called her and I just and I told her and I was like, "Mom, I got to tell you something." And 
um, you know, Adele molested me. Like he took my virginity from me when I was seven years old. And she was like, what? No, he didn't. What do you mean? And she was in denial. And I was like, he was beating me, mom, like all the time. He's like, what? No, he didn't. Like she was appalled and just, no, are you serious, baby girl? She started crying and she broke down. Like it broke her. And I just had to do it. It hurt me so bad to do it, but also liberated me. And I was like, okay, I'm do. I finally, a little bit of sense of self-worth came, mm-hmm. you know, finally I was like, okay, I'm showing up for myself for the first time ever to unlock this box of freaking endless pain and um and that's sad and then i and then from there on i didn't talk to her for a long time I, we were we was weird it was weird for a couple of years mm-hmm. and was the, the dell was that the guy her original yeah, pimp? yeah yeah no no no, no. dell yeah. was the one that lived with us okay um when i was from when i was born from seven years old she ran away from George, the original pimp, when she had me, because she was terrified he was going to kill her, kill me. Okay, and George might be the father, or you don't know. George, my, she, my mom says George is my father. Okay, um, yes. but she wanted to hide me from the family because the family is such a notorious. And and then when he met, he would always come around, and I felt such a crazy connection to this man, like he was, you know, it yeah. is is rather he's still alive, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, and was he worse than Dell? Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah, he's the fucking devil's advocate. He's Al Pacino and the devil's advocate. This man yes. is disgusting. Like it's just the like it's just the epitome of the worst of the worst. And yes. he had FBI. He had he had freaking police on the payroll. Like just top mafia shit, you know. And it was just awful. And just to watch him, what he did to my my sister, you know, raped her. He she was twisted. She still is, and it's sad. And. She was in love with him, and then she was jealous of me because he, you know, we got into fights, but he he wished I was the son. He, You know, I had moments with him. I came face-to-face with him. This is before I had the breakdown. He fucked me up mentally because I interacted with him. He's a master manipulator, disgusting killer, you know? Like, wow. no joke. <laughs> How wow. my mother survived him, I don't know, is, like, beyond me. And is and who is the Jones family? That's all of, that's all of them. That's the father and all the family, all the men. Okay. The original guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's just hard to it's hard to keep the parade of pimps straight. I think that's a name of, that's the name of your book, Parade of Pimps. <laughs> parade of Pimpery. <laughs> um Pimpery. You you are a fucking survivor, Nicole. Jesus. You are a fucking survivor. So so um let's get let's get back then to that uh the liberation. You mm-hmm. share it with your mom. It doesn't kill her. Your relationship with her is awkward for a couple of years. Um talk about what, if anything, you remember thinking or feeling when it didn't kill her? Well, I was relieved, and you know, I was just grateful. And I think that's when gratitude set in, you know. And I was like, oh, okay, so I can tell the truth without... And also, I, I was scared to tell the truth because I was also beat. Like, you don't tell anybody anything that comes in this house. Don't you tell anybody at school what goes on. You know, you you know, you know, speak when spoken to. So I was like, like literally traumatized, silent. So to say that out loud, I think, started giving me my voice. You know, because I thought I had no choice. I thought I had no voice, even though I was this crazy rapper. But I can sing as well. Like, I think my singing voice was halted because all of this. Like, now my singing voice is just beautiful and coming out. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy because of the fact that now all the healing journey that I've been on. Doesn't it make you laugh when artists are like, oh, you know, I don't want to go into therapy or I don't want to get help because uh, it's going to harm my creativity. I'm like, man, it will give you. <laughs> such a wider palette to express yourself mm-hmm. with. Yeah, I was there too. I was like, what? I, what am I going to do without Weed and Jameson? Like, this is how I write hits in the studio. Bullshit. You know, oh, yeah. you, you, can, <laughs> you can always access your edge. You can always access your always, edge. Always, always, yeah. always. Yeah. Um, so, uh, 
you experience this liberation, you're starting to get some self-esteem. Yeah. Um, what's the next? What's the next piece? And then the next is um, I my drinking, and I, I started just, I don't know, I just, I, the healing journey was on, and then when my dad died, I started chanting, nam myoho kyo I got into Buddhism. I'm, like, I've been a spiritual seeker. I do everything from Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, Christianity. I've studied it all, and I've just, just been a global spiritual person, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I did peyote ceremonies with some Native American chiefs, and mm-hmm. they prophesied some things to me, and I and I and I and I healed a lot of the trauma in 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 those teepees in the fire, you know, like really literally on my knees doing crazy. Like I'm so intense. And was, I, was this ayahuasca or something? I did different? ayahuasca recently, yeah. um, but this was peyote, and um, yeah. it's a healing medicine, and just with my natives, and I'm just very. I started doing that work and my shamanism and self-healing and I found some healers also, healer friends who like spoke to me and were like, I see this, I see this, I have to help you right now. You have to heal, help heal the world with your story. Like people were prophesized to me everywhere I everywhere I went. And I was like, okay, there's got to be something to all this, you know? Yeah. So, what, do you, what do you say to the person who's listening right now and who is rolling their eyes? And right. Going, oh, my God. <laughs> California is full of them. I'm you not know? from California, first yeah. of all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, open your mind. Open your mind because, again, it's just everything is possible beyond your understanding. And um, I didn't understand it. I just, like, I allow, like you said, the willingness to be open to something outside of myself because... Like Einstein said, the same mind can't heal the same mind or whatever he said. It's like mm. the same crazy mind can't create, you know, something right. different. And with your thinking, you're only going to remain in your box. So for me, I was p- open so from a child because like you said, I just wanted anything but and I was just so open. And me being open is how I've been able to have these experiences because I don't judge. And I, I'm, I'm a very unique person. And when you see my picture, you'll get it. Like I've got all tats. I'm a complete artist. Like, so I'm, I get judged by the conservative and the people, of course, but like... Like I am honest and I'm I'm very much so open to healing and I just want to be my best self and I know that my best self can't be created by me. It's got to come from a higher power and the higher power always talks to me through other people. Mm-hmm. So just being open and understanding that there's so much more than what you think. <laughs> what we think in this third dimension we can't even understand the fourth dimension and I feel like I tap into the fourth a lot through people and my openness and I'm a meditator and I just believe in them like I said the metaphysics like the, the power of the universe you know like we're radiating in the sphere of this black nothingness you know the ocean is like it's all so mystical so if you don't believe I'm sorry I feel bad for you because it's a close you're closing off magic for yourself yeah you know yeah, I mean, it's so arrogant to think that we understand the depth and the breadth of the universe and the way it works yeah, and how it works through us. So what's the next phase? So you you start doing these ceremonies. Yeah, I started doing the ceremonies. I was told to go to support group, you know, for independence of, uh, you know, for children of alcoholics or whatever mm-hmm. and um, addicts. And in that group, I got so triggered and I was like, I don't want to be here. And somebody suggested, well, maybe you need another group, <laughs> you know? And I cracked, I told, I blacked out, I blacked and I, I blacked out my, I was blacked out and I crashed my car on Sunset Boulevard and I drove it totaled like the car, the hood up over Laurel Canyon into my, and then that, I, I started to realize nothing is, is sustainable other than a, a, a support group. Mm-hmm. So realizing that and realizing like my ego is not my amigo and realizing that I don't know anything and that I need help and I don't have parents to, to guide me. So I've got to seek some support groups and really, really latch onto these women and allow and be open for them to guide me because I want better. And that's where I'm at today. So talk about what it looks like for you today. Um, 
how how you allow the support group to help you. Um, if if there are any um, examples, specific examples of something, uh, you know, the smallest problem to the largest problem, uh, and and also therapy, if you would, um, if, yeah. if if. Um, well, I, I had recent therapy, and uh, the therapist actually how, is how I went back into another support group because I thought I could heal the addiction with um, ayahuasca, and it made it worse. And I was discussing all of this. Well, as I was doing this, I went out, and I had a therapist, though. Mm-hmm. And I was telling her, and she's like, you know, maybe you should want to call that sponsor you talked about, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you think so? She's like, it sounds like it because I vowed to not do cocaine. You know, I vowed. And then when I was on alcohol, of course, I did it. So and that cocaine killed my father, killed my uncle, killed like my mother's living. But she cocaine is what she did my whole life. It pretty much killed her spiritually, among other things. So I saw me break my value, and I and I and I swore I wouldn't. So I knew I had a problem, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 these women, they don't want anything from me. I think, and whether I'm spinning out and I, I knowing that I can walk into a support group and as long as I share my story, I get swarmed with twenty people. At first, I didn't trust it, and that's why it's been three years of this journey in these support groups because I, I had to test them all because I have such big trust issues. You know, mm-hmm. um, what were some of the things your brain was telling you? <laughs> that these people are fake and they don't they don't care. They're just like they want to hurt you or they're just going to laugh at you and mock you. You know, just all the lies that You're my different brain. Yeah, them. I'm different. I'm unique. My story. No one will understand my story because it's true. I do like I, my sponsor said. You are in your trauma is worse than I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. But you know, we you we're, we're 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 alike. We're the same. We have different pain. You know, yeah. and that helps me trust. And I and I just stayed close. And I and I was just honest about how I felt. But I I, I have I have a courage. I'm naturally courageous. You know, and I understand a lot of people are terrified to really speak speak up but i'm definitely about from the streets of boston so i'm not scared of that you know so i would always challenge these women and i would be like what you know what i mean and they just would never go away you know and they just stayed there to try to help me and say listen we're gonna love you until you love yourself i'm like what that's so weird like get out of here you know what i don't get it is it sexual you know no of course it wasn't you know Uh, my brain would tell me a billion things that weren't true but it was all fears and lies was there a turning point when you let some of their love in. Yeah, absolutely. When I discovered, after I did the ayahuasca, something opened up for me and the therapist saying, and they didn't leave even when I went out because I, I figured it was some culty, some culty freaking support group and they're only going to like me if I'm clicky and I'm doing what they're doing at the time. But that's not true. I went I went and did my own thing and told them, y'all are crazy. I'm not into this. I got a bigger God than this stupid thing. I'm not going to do this. And they were like, okay, we're going to love you anyway and just stay close. That's what's up. You know, I love you regardless. And I'm like, you do? And they did. And that showed me that, okay, my I'm a, my defense mechanisms and all this, I'm just try- I'm just scared. I'm just a scared little girl inside and she's trying to run away from healing. <laughs> that's what this is. And that's exactly like they broke me open by just loving me and just being there regardless. And and they, they showed me because they really had to prove themselves to me, which is ridiculous, you know. But my pain is that deep that I had to see it or else I wouldn't get it. I wouldn't allow this thing because of my judgments of it and of, of the judgments of the world that the world has on support groups, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just fear is because I think everyone needs a freaking spiritual 12-step program, period. Yeah. <laughs> period. Share some <laughs> moments one-on-one or group moments with these women that highlight that breaking through conversations that you 
might um, might remember I mean, just moments just moments like my sponsor saying i see you you know and i love you regardless you know and just whether it's anything i'm spinning out them a uh, calling at the right time a woman that i met randomly and they and i'm just crying and they, she doesn't know and she's like it's okay i i've been there too and having a, a woman just just that connection and knowing of that common peril and they really truly it's just this feeling of love like truly unconditional love that I never felt this, this that's what it is and it's just so beautiful and like my my sober sister FaceTime me from her trailer you know like and just like taking the time no matter what like to check in with each other because we have the same the same disease of this pain that is insidious in in the addiction and the only way that we heal is through each other and through these support groups because if we feel alone we're going to use and drink mm-hmm. or die or eat or whatever we use as our drug sex you know whatever mm-hmm. I, you know it could hurt myself more than the fingers that I have in my hands you know in ways so and but there we're all the same inside it's really the same half dozen emotions mm-hmm. rolling around one of the big discoveries in doing this podcast was that you know the thing that somebody who is molested somebody who is beaten mm-hmm. and somebody whose parents just weren't that interested in them mm. they all were given the message you don't really matter exactly. does it matter what the envelope looked like that the, that the message came in yeah, maybe for figuring out what your triggers are, but in terms of giving yourself the love that you now can go get yeah. and the compassion mm-hmm. to give weight to your hurt. And, and giving weight to it is not to make somebody else feel miserable or guilty. It's for you to stop feeling miserable. Yeah, I think you just said a key, like that self-compassion. I was so hot on myself and I was beating myself up and wearing this victim like badge of honor, you know, like self-pity because, you know, you hear a bit, little bit of my story. You're like, holy shit, she's been through a lot. So therefore, I, I thought that was, you know, I, why would I take responsibility for all this? I was born into this. And then it took so long. I had to move cross country for me to really even see clearly now, you know, in Wayne Dyer, erroneous zones. I know I keep shouting these books mm-hmm. out. I'm sorry, but they changed my life. And, and the, then that he talks about all the triggers and all of that and and just was like wow okay so it's my reaction to these things i chose to let these things mm-hmm. still hurt me i'm judging all these people so i'm separating myself i'm isolating i'm not healing myself because i'm keeping myself in this negative energy and this negative pain of misery and judging the next person because of what they look like they don't look like me you don't get me you don't understand this my life as a half black half greek woman like you know male- you know but that's all ego so until I really hurt, and then stepping into the support groups, like hearing other people, my ego is not my amigo, hearing all these freaking corny slogans, and but they were tro- so true, and it just seeps into your soul, and then like once your soul, you know, and the spirit just gets inside of you, as long as you open, like I think, and they talk about the willingness and the openness, so I think it's taking the first step of even stepping into the room of a support group, and then once you, once I, and I kept doing it, because something inside of me was like, I never felt more safe than when I finally stepped into one of those Isn't rooms. Isn't it incredible? Ugh. It's incredible, and especially uh, I find uh, going to room, uh, going to uh, men only meetings mm. because uh, I have found, and I imagine it's one of the reasons why you uh, mostly hang out uh, with women mm-hmm. is it's safe because nobody is trying to impress somebody. Mm-hmm. There is a vulnerability and a raw honesty when you when you take all the reasons people could be phony mm-hmm. out of a room. Mm-hmm things get so real 
and so vulnerable and so honest yeah. and it feels so safe. I do also go to, to some mixed meetings and those are incredibly safe too, but yeah. I, I have found that when it's just the same sex sometimes yeah. in, in a meeting, it, yeah. it can even go to a deeper Especially a deeper as level. a woman, you know, wanting to be, having a having no show of what grace looks like, what a lady looks like, what values look like. I want these women, these beautiful women who carry themselves. I'm like, I need to learn from women how to become a woman, you know? And, I just, and so I'm assuming the same as a man, you know, like. Yeah, it's um, college. It's been college for me. Yeah. My men's group raised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening to me right now. I'm only 14 days back in here, you know, and I'm just like, okay, but I had to go out. And that's when people say relapse shouldn't be a part of your sobriety. It's actually bullshit because I had so much trauma and so much pain. My ego kept me alive that like, of course I had to go out like because it wouldn't seep in. It has to seep past these layers, this pain, these armor that I had on. In other words, you had to get kicked in the teeth a little harder to surrender deeper. <laughs> yeah, even because I mean, what I was born, I was born kicked in the face and I got, I got beat as like so the pain of undoing it i'm gonna have to beat myself up you know and that's when you said self-compassion is that i don't i don't have to is a softer easy way my sponsor always says you know and i'm like now okay i understand that because i can have compassion for myself i could have compassion for the entire world and be so hot on myself and i didn't even do that stuff to myself i never even hurt anyone really like of course i did but as far as like what was done to me right uh what are some of the greatest hits of uh, negative self-talk that you struggle with I mean, uh, I'm not good enough, you know, I'm not, I'm not worthy enough and no one loves me and I'm just, I have no family. Like today I've, I got like one of my cousins disappointed me so bad and I was like, see this, I just have no family. I have no blood, you know? So that makes me feel like shit sometimes because, but then I'm so blessed with my sober family, with my friends. Like I have an abundance of love in my life, but sometimes I latch on to this, the, that no parent story and no blood family story. Like, I don't know why, but just I it can go there and that self pity and I'm like, you don't understand you have your mother right there like no one bought me a car no one did this for me you know mm -hmm. so that do you, you know? think do you think we do that sometimes as a misguided idea of self-compassion mm, perhaps i don't know it's so curious to me what why why we do that well, I think that if I slip into like a fear of money, like I just recently quit a job because it was just a trigger. And if I slip into fear, then that's when it opens the gates of more fear. Mm -hmm. And then that's when my mind is just goes insane. I'm a creator as well. So I can create. Oh, yeah. oh my God, a movie. The negative, the negative dominoes. Yes. It's just one thing leads to another. And every single one ends with me being old, toothless, homeless unloved yeah. cold and unsafe and suicidal like I, I i never understood suicide like i was the one who was like i'm gonna go shoot up everybody else that i you know all these racist people i'm gonna kill them all before i'll ever kill myself but now when i go through i, I understand why people kill themselves like the that 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 like dance between sanity and insanity you know in this relationship i've had currently like we've been insane for three years like and she's now gonna try to get sober as well and it's just Honestly, and then with re religiosity, like I, it, it, people with they, their outlooks on being gay, and I thought I believe my God, like I be I believe in free love, like I believe that we can love who we are and love love who you want to love. But then what's going on in our country? It, it just I think the media and the state of the world gets into play, and then my mind questions myself, and I was like, wait, I love who I am though. So when people preaching to me that the, the spirit of homosexuality will be off of you, I'm like, what? 
Like, are you kidding? Like, I talk, I want to, my, my brothers and sisters who are killing themselves because they are who they are and they're terrified to come out. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's not, that, that came, that's a bad spirit on them. Like, that is horrible. And, but then my, then somehow, because these people are persuasive and just, if it, it, it hurts me and then I'm open to it and I question myself sometimes, which is nuts. But then that's just this, my, alco- my alcoholic yeah. addict mind doubting myself and mm-hmm. fear and all that negativity that I allow in. Yeah. And I'm newly sober, so I'm just getting, gaining my feet. I'm like a toddler trying to, you know, and I can't, I, I'm praying to God one day at a time I can really get this thing because I know where I can go. Like I'm just, I, where I am now and just imagine I, 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 I haven't even tried, like I haven't even t- tried because I've been high and drunk like I want to apply myself and my intelligence and my talents like God like if I can stay sober imagine what I can do you know yeah <laughs> let's end with um, trading some fears and loves uh, one of the one of the uh, things we do on the podcast sometimes is we go back and forth and just okay. think of s- something that we're scared of you know for for instance for me um I've been thinking about getting uh, another dog because one of our dogs, uh, my ex and uh, I shared shared two dogs and one of them died in, in May and my heart is still broken over it and yeah. I kind of want to get another dog, but I am afraid that it will, I will develop an even deeper attachment because now I live alone to it to a dog Mm. and it will die in a worse way Mm. than my last dog and my heart will be broken irreparably Mm. i get that i hear that i feel that i have two dogs too so i get that yeah give me one a fear um i have a fear of not being able to structure myself and not being able to be the business entrepreneur i want to be because i've got to be my own boss and i and i have dreams and of being my music and my life coaching and just everything i want to do and i have a fear of lacking the business skills you know Mm. that's just negative thinking you know i'm just terrified of actually get getting that much responsibility and having to be that efficient you know you know, and one of the things I think, too, is uh, I've been listening to this podcast, How I Built This. It's amazing. Ooh, you really? should listen to it. Yeah. It's an NPR podcast. And um, they interview people who built these really successful companies or organizations. And almost every single one of them, it was a trial by fire. Mm. Horrible failures. You know, something that uh, some catastrophe that they that either you know, brought their first enterprise down or almost killed the thing that ultimately became successful, Mm. but they just kept moving forward and they believed in themselves and their, uh, ideas and, uh, their, as the failures brought so much information to them Mm. that they used to make their endeavor even better. Oh, wow. So they, they needed it. It was like the greatest lesson that they could get. Mm. Painful at the time, terrifying, right. but ultimately it helped them redesign, become leaner, mm. meaner, mm-hmm. more innovative, mm-hmm. um, etc. So I, like I just that. put that out there to anybody who's getting into the "I'm going to make mistakes." Yeah, because uh, boy, do I struggle with that too. Right? Oh, I work work myself up into a nap. Just, <laughs> right, I gotta go to sleep because I oh, can't get out of this. I, yeah, yeah, I can't. <laughs> gotta wake up again. I'm just feeling again. dread about the thing I can't even start doing. Right. You know. <laughs> um, all right. Fear. 
you know, my wife and I uh, got divorced about a, uh, a year ago, okay. and I'm afraid that I'll get into a relationship, fall in love, and the woman will see me with my clothes off and um, rethink things. <laughs> oh, no, right? Right? Lies that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or some part of me will come to light mm. that she won't accept, but I'll already be in so deep that, again, my heart will be broken. Right, right. These are like all the things that suck about love. Right. You know what I mean? Right. The fear of heartbreak. Absolutely. I can relate to that. I think we all can. (laughs) Um, Another fear of mine. Hmm. I guess. um, (laughs) I don't know why the fear of not reaching success is the only thing I can really think of. Like that is just so terrifying. If my dreams don't come true, I'm so scared of that. But that's just... Another fear, I guess, uh, my current relationship, um, I have a fear of us because we we are together, but we live together, but we're broken up and we break up every other day. It's just, and we have two dogs Mm -hmm. and I have a fear of separating the dogs and like, what's that going to be like? Mm -hmm. It's funny because you walk through that and you're just saying that right now. And I'm like, we're going, we have two dogs, they're best friends. You know, we raise Mm -hmm. them together. Like I have a fear of like co-parenting because I don't know how that's going to work. And then I have a fear of separating them because these dogs are best friends. And I'm like, what is going to happen? So I'm future tripping about the dogs and like that, yes. you know, that's like what's going on. We st- I know there there have to be people out there that are like, we got to stay together for the dogs. We have. That's what I'm saying. We've been together for three years and I've, I know the dogs have kept us together maybe for a that's minute. The ti- maybe that's the title of your book. <laughs> what? We're only together because of the for dogs. The dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um <laughs> Let's do one more fear each, and then we'll do some loves. Um, I have a fear that uh, I really hurt somebody's feelings that I didn't invite to play on my hockey team this season. Mm. That's kind of a lame one, but Mm. I I really agonize uh, over potentially hurting people's feelings. Mm. Uh, And the funny thing is, is I've hurt people's feelings my whole life but um i don't know it just it gives me anxiety to think that somebody you know what it is more than that i hurt their feelings honestly half of it is that they hurt their feelings and the other half is that somebody um dislikes me Mm. and might talk to other people right yeah and in my mind that turns into a game of dominoes and all of a sudden everybody hates me and i'm alone right Right, I get it. Yeah, I understand that one. We we have so many fears what other people think of us. Like yeah. we, everybody, you know, why? Why do we care what everybody thinks? We all are crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, another fear is I think I don't even I didn't want to say this out loud because I don't even like manifesting things. But my nana is my best friend. Like I'm, I fear her death. Like I don't even know. Mm-hmm. I don't want her to die. Like I want her to live forever. It's such a massive fear of mine. You know, and that's your grandmother, my mother's mother. Yeah, yeah. my nana. Who yeah. thank God I'll see next week. And she beat cancer twice. And she's she is my everything. She's my best mm-hmm. friend. She's seventy seven, seventy eight. Mm-hmm. How did how did such how did your mom come from such a healthy person? Where, where, <laughs> no, did, all the, where no. did all the craziness come in? No, but see, this is the thing. My the, my mother, 
hated me for not hated me my mother was so mad how much i idolized my nana because my mother did not speak to my nana until i was born she banished my mother she let her go to new york she my my there's trauma there my nana abused not my nana let these racist men abuse my mother because my mother had an afro and they called her a nigga lover, you know, back in the day, these racist people. So my mother remembers being tied up by these men young. She was abused. Who, who were these men? My Nana's boyfriends. I don't know. I wasn't born yet. This is my yeah. mom was born in 1960, you know. And um, so whatever happened in the 60s and 70 in the 70s. And your mom was Greek. Yeah. Okay. My Nana's Greek, Greek and French, I think. Okay. Um, so no, my mother and my Nana's mother died when she my Nana was nine. Mm -hmm. So back then, and my Nana's very my Nana's cold. My Nana's a cold woman, and she's a cold okay. Boston woman. But she loved like she. But that's the thing. She loved me. She gave like she's arts and crafts. She's creative, but she never guided me. She never told me to stop doing drugs. She never. She came to see me when I had my overdose, but she never said you need this support group. You know, like so I had all this love, but no guidance, no discipline, no no direction. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So yeah. she and. She don't doesn't talk about the truth. They don't like my grandparents don't talk about what happened. Like you, you don't right. even ask them. I do because I know I don't care. My name is my best friend, right. and I poke all her buttons and I make her talk. But she only talks to me, and she she and I have a special relationship that my nana has never had with anyone. Why do you think that's different than with your mother? Do you think it's because she doesn't feel responsible for you the way she felt responsible for her daughter? No, I think she's trying to make up for how bad uh, she did with my mother. I, I think you. that's why grandparents often spoil the grandkids because yeah. they fucked up with the kids, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, 100%, because I, I hear this all the time and I understand it because my mother would cry and be like, you love her, you don't even know what she did to me and I'd be like, ma, shut up. Like, I don't, wasn't even alive. She saved my life. So she yeah. was my only normal. I'm sorry, I was not there in the 70s. I don't know what the hell happened, you know, and um, I can't be responsible for that. I'm the youngest one in this generations, you know, like, come on, you know, like, yeah. get with it. <laughs> but that's what my mother, like, you don't know her. You don't know what she did. And I'm like, I don't want to know, honestly, because she was my light. She was my savior. If it wasn't for my Nana, I don't know what would have happened to me. Yeah. You know? So, but she was not that person to my to my mom, I gotcha. though. Yeah, I was a little I was a little confused. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's do some loves. Um, I love discovering a new brand of frozen pizza that's better than one any one that you've tried before. It's so cute. I don't, I don't I don't eat a lot of frozen pizza. I, um, I you know maybe four times a year, three times a year. But yeah, I just discovered Newman's, you know, Paul Newman's yeah, brand. It's yeah. really good. Yeah, I yeah. like that one. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Um, loves, loves, loves. Ugh. I love meditating. I love love. I love it too much where I had to stop and actually take action because mm -hmm. I can meditate and like I learned breathing techniques, you know, mm -hmm. and like when I learned the guided meditation, just sitting and doing the guided meditations on YouTube and like changed my life. Just sitting there and listening and, I, and finding mentors, you know, like, you know, Oprah started doing stuff with Deepak Chopra and she had 21 day meditations. I've been doing it for seven years and it changed my life. And now I get because I used to smoke weed like a freaking insane person until 14 days ago, actually. And I mean, I took eight months off once, but um, but now that high I get from just breathing, like mm -hmm. you don't understand, like in learning yoga, like I'm a yogi and I'm just learning how to breathe into your chest. Most people just breathe into their gut mm -hmm. and you don't even get like you get 4% of air probably in your whole body when you you don't even get you know mm -hmm. so just in that high you get from that oh i love it i'm probably addicted that's to a it good one. That's <laughs> good. well there are worse things you could be addicted to um i love there's a furniture maker uh 
he's my favorite furniture maker. Uh, and he's deceased, but he designed stuff in the fifties uh, uh, and sixties. A guy named Vladimir Kagan, mm-hmm. and he has one piece of furniture in particular that he made um, that I don't know how to describe it, but it's a uh, low-backed lounge chair, and it looks like it was sculpted by God. Mm. It is so, it's kind of futuristic and mid-century modern looking, but there isn't a thing about it that isn't beautiful from, from every single angle. And it, it's, it's so pared down and elegant and functional. It it is a work of art. It's in museums. It's, it's so, uh, incredible. My dream would be to one day, uh, be able to uh to afford one yeah. of his but they're they're i think pretty crazy expensive yeah look that up yeah. that sounds amazing i know i love furniture yeah. um another love of mine is crystals um i'm obsessed with crystal quartz and like you talk about uh <laughs> oprah i know i talk about mm-hmm. so much she had a uh, rose quartz bathtub and i'm obsessed with this amethyst like there's an amethyst sink of course i don't know how mm-hmm. much this would cost like you just talk about the furniture right. but like i dream of having my home and having chris just it's just mm-hmm. made in crystal quartz you know like in the mm-hmm. rose quartz and the high vibrations and the frequencies like i'm obsessed with the crystals mm-hmm. like love 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 in the meantime you could take on a southern roommate named crystal yeah <laughs> in a pinch that might true that might do <laughs> um i love this is a really specific one, but I love the, uh, have you ever heard the song We're an American Band by Grand Funk Railroad? It's a 70s maybe, song. Maybe, maybe. And there are sections of it where it's just the instruments and the band is so tight together and the, the yes, yes, it's a, it's a song that has cowbell in it. And, yeah. uh, but there are, um, moments in the sections where it's where it's just the instruments that is such an incredible groove and it's engineered so beautifully that it's like this you know when you hear a piece of music and all the instruments gel mm-hmm. and it's just like somebody is hitting you with like a velvet sledgehammer mm-hmm. and it's just so yeah it's yeah that resonance it's powerful mm-hmm. but it's soft yeah you know it it yeah, that that I I just kept playing on repeat that thing over and over again. And the guitarists, you know, he's like doing a palm mute with a with a guitar. That's where you kind of mute the strings and you. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, like yeah. Like with your thing. Yeah. And and it that's like in sync with the cowbell and the bass and oh. the drums all at the same time. And so it's like just this massive single yeah. sound that has a great groove to it. Sounds cool. Yeah. I gotta hear this song. Yeah, it's great. It's a great song. Uh, give me another love. Um, another love. I love to dance. Dancing is a huge love of mine. I love moving. I love dancing. Music, I just can't. When I hear music, I just can't even sit still. Who are your favorite dancers? Obviously, Michael Jackson. Obviously, Michael Jackson, yeah. Um, Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson. You know, like, um, I really love a lot of these these new dancers. These young children are just, like, blowing my mind these days. And so you think you can dance. Um Honestly, like, yeah, Michael Jackson takes the cake. There's really, really nobody else I've ever, ever tried to emulate or or love. You know, Paula Abdul, Madonna, Janet Jackson, Aaliyah danced, but, you know, yeah, Michael Jackson, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll never forget seeing him do the moonwalk on that Motown 25th thing. I think it was 
85 maybe that, that he did that mm-hmm. where he broke out the moonwalk mm-hmm. for the first mm-hmm. time with diana ross um I believe no, she he, was there. Oh, well, oh, yeah, but but I don't think she was on stage with him. He oh. he did uh, Billie Jean oh, yeah. at the Motown okay. Awards, and uh, yeah, I think she was the host. Oh, okay. I believe okay. they like she was just the host yeah. of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I still the hair on the back of my neck stands on end every time I see it because yeah. it's so. It's just there. I don't have words. Yeah, I don't have words he lived for and it. breathed and walked. Walk. Yes. He just lived it. You know, it's funny because everybody thinks he has a high tone. He had a very do, do, um, low voice in real life, but he stayed in the to keep mm. his voice high. Mm. You know, it's like people don't even. It's so funny what you don't know, but like, and he lived and like that. He lived and breathed. Like he was just living it. You know, and that's yeah. what I, I idolized. Which idolizing anything isn't good, but I totally idolized him and just the how and he and just the dance all day long. You know, and his father. I mean. It was just Joe Jackson. I got to meet him and do an interview with him. He's a creep. <laughs> that doesn't sound surprising. He's such a creep. And I was just like, wow. Again, abuse. And well, look what happens to you. But like, it just his work ethic. He lived and breathed it because he was trying to escape his life. Yeah. And I related to that. Like, Michael is like, see, that's what I'm going to do. You know? But you don't wish for life that out of balance. No, no, no. That's why I'm glad. I'm like, yeah. he, you know, he was addicted to things. You he know, he could have used some support. He groups. needed some support support groups. Yeah. Except, you know, he was too too famous, and they had to keep him where they wanted him. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to share before uh, before oh, we wrap man, this up? Just want to share love, man. I just want you know, I don't know. I just want to raise the love frequency. I'm so glad you had me come here and you know share my story and just the courage of actually being honest about this because I had so much shame with all of this, you know, to own it. You know, and that's why I, I just, it's just, I'm really grateful to be where I am. And I'm just grateful to meet people like you who, you know, when you meet like-minded people, it gives me hope, especially because look, you, you come from a, you, are you, you, I might look at you and judge you to be like Trumpy, you know, mm-hmm. like you don't like me. You probably like Trump and like, mm-hmm. you know, that's how I could feel. And that's just my judgment. But I feel defensive right now as a, as a black woman. But then you show me that you're just this beautiful human. And like, and I, I live for that things like this, you know, yeah. and I hope that we can spread that, you know? Yeah. Oh, I, I appreciate you you coming on and, and sharing your story. Thank you. <laughs> many, many thanks to uh, to Nicole. Um, before I read some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of ways to support the show if you feel so inclined, and we could really use uh, some support. Uh, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that they changed the algorithm that measures downloads, and so... Um, advertising revenue is about half of what it used to be. And now for 2018, um, it, it's looking in terms of, uh, advertisers, it's, um, it's, it's looking pretty bleak. Um, I, I think, but better help will still be with us, but, um, we, we could definitely use some help. So a couple of different ways you can do a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can become a monthly donor um, through either PayPal or Patreon. I recommend Patreon because then I can throw the occasional bonus episode or silly content that I put together uh, to you guys. And you can also um, uh, become eligible for raffles. Sometimes I'll raffle stuff off, like I raffled off a weekend hotel room at uh, LA Podfest uh, this fall, this last fall. Um, I'll put links to all this this stuff, but um, it, it, it helps greatly. Another way that you can help uh, non-financially is just spreading the word about the podcast through word of mouth or social media. Uh, all of that stuff uh, helps and, it's, and is greatly appreciated. And filling out surveys. Um, 
Surveys are such an important part of this show. And um, I love it when you guys share something that um, helps the show, helps me, helps somebody else, or all of the above. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by... Um, a woman who just who uh, calls herself depressed and abused um, about her depression. Um, bipolar depression makes me feel like I am this tiny ant stuck in molasses, terrified I'll be stepped on, yet secretly hoping I will be stepped on. About her anxiety, worrying that everyone who sees me knows the perversions in my head. About her OCD, my counting and checking is the only thing that is keeping the world alive. If I stop, everyone dies. About her PTSD, oh, this is so harsh. Terrified that I'll wake up and be seven again, getting raped by my father. That this world where I'm an adult is the dream. About being a sex crime victim. Feeling like all I am good for is to be a place for a guy to, quote, put it. I am not really human, just a fuck doll about living with an abuser, too terrified to live. So instead of being in my body, I just hang out in the upper right corner of my mind, waiting and ready for the time when I have to leave my body entirely. About her anger issues, feeling like a portion of my father and his anger is lodged in my soul and that I must atone for my sins by hurting myself. And then a snapshot um, you know, normally um, the the surveys towards the second half uh, after the interview, um, I put the heavier ones towards the end, but um, I apologize that I'm coming with such a heavy one right out of the gate. Um, a snapshot from her life. Um, I was seven years old wearing my favorite sailor outfit. I loved to twirl in the pleated skirt. But that was a bad thing to do because it was being a slut and turning my dad on. So that was the night that he, quote, married me to the dog so that the dog, as my husband, could rape me. Then, since I was spoiled and rotten after the rape, he raped me all the while saying how he hated, quote, sloppy seconds. Any comments to make the podcast better? The podcast is great. I love the variety of information on there. I would love to hear more from people who dissociate but do not have DID. They could talk about how they dissociate during abuse and where they go. I would love to have guests on um, to talk about that. And thank you for suggesting that. Um, and I'm so sorry that you had to experience what you did. That is... Um, I can't even... I can't even find words, but um, sending you some some love and thank you for being um, willing to fill that out because that can't be, that can't be easy sitting down and putting words to that and calling that back. So thank you. This is an email I got from um, Emmy, and she writes. Um, I've been listening to your show for well over four years and wanted to first say thank you for the podcast. You and your guests have saved my life in so many ways, and I feel so lucky to be a listener. It took me until last night to finally realize that I have a drinking problem. I found out the hard way, which was after getting my first DUI uh, ever last night at age 30. I seldom drink, but when I do, it is to the extreme. I've never, ever gotten into this much trouble 
uh, in my life. I've been feeling an immense amount of guilt and shame because I am now a statistic. I also behaved so poorly. Despite the incident, uh, this incident, I've been able to see the beauty in it as well. The beauty that I have been experiencing is the amount of love and compassion that my friends and family, mainly my father, has had for me these past 24 hours. I also called or sent out a series of apologies, even the police officer that made my arrest, to those affected and feel beyond grateful that everyone was so forgiving. Until now, I never believed that I could ever be forgiven for any mistakes, that I've ever made any throughout my life, whether it be at work, at home, in social settings, and, and elsewhere. It simply was not the case. For the first time ever, I felt truly loved, worthy, and valued as a human being. I also feel human, I think, for the very first time. I really hope that maybe my experience can help others who have gone through a similar crisis somehow. I, of course, will be taking full responsibility for my actions. I will also be getting help, and I will be okay. I wish you many more successes in the future. Uh... Awesome, awesome, and awesome. Um, people that hit a bottom because of an addiction or an untreated illness, um, so often when those people heal or learn how to cope with life on life's terms without engaging in their addiction or bad coping mechanisms, they become, it's it's almost like, a, like this superpower that they can use to connect to people who are in a place where they used to be because there are certain things that nobody can help you with except somebody who has lived something similar. Nobody can help you in the way, I should say, that somebody who has lived a similar experience to you. And if not if not the circumstances of your experience, the feelings of your circumstance or your event or whatever it was. This is an awful moment filled out by Faithfully Guilty. And uh, she writes, My great-grandma died when I was 11. She left me a gold necklace with a ruby pendant. I loved it and wore it every day until I left it one morning on the side of the sink before showering. I forgot about it. And when I went back later, it was gone. I went and told my dad. He told me I was irresponsible, that it had probably fallen down the drain and that I deserved to lose it. I was heartbroken. Fast forward to one day when I was 15. I was sitting quietly alone in the living room. My dad came in and sat down across from me. He asked if I remembered the necklace that Mima left me. I told him that I remembered it fell down the drain. He went on to tell me that it didn't really fall down the drain, that he found it on the sink that day and didn't think I was responsible enough to have it. And when he thought I deserved to have it, he would give it to me. And he got up and left. It's so fucked up. Oh, your 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 dad is not just a dick. He's a funny dick, not intentionally funny. Like that is that is like something you would see in a sitcom. That is so fucking awfulsome. Uh, this is a shame and secrets survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Jay. She's gay. She's in her 20s. She was raised um, in kind of environment was she raised in? A, a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, she's been uh, also emotionally abused, but she didn't specify 
give any specifics about either of those things. Darkest thoughts, that I should have been aborted before anyone got attached to me, that I was always too much of a coward to go through with killing myself, so I'm exaggerating about my suicidal ideation. Um, you know, I, I get that sometimes, too, when I talk about the periods of my life when I was suicidal. A little voice in my brain says, sometimes says, oh, you're being a little dramatic because you hadn't made a plan. But you know what? Thinking about killing yourself um, is more than just a fleeting brief thought that comes up every once in a great while. That's, you know, that's a thing. That is that is not uh, a trifle. Is that the right word? Uh, darkest Secrets uh, Stole from a Workplace. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having a penis and using it to have sex with a woman. I am not transgender. I have no desire to be a man. And apart from this one scenario, I'm happy with my body how it is. It took me a long time to figure this out. Now I think it's just a part of the weird rainbow of human sexuality. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to read your survey is I get so happy when you guys embrace whatever your thing is. You know, as long as you are not um, um, harming your life or somebody else's, um, it it just... Um, and this is the other reason I wanted to read it. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my mother, I'm so sick of lying to you. I feel like I have a second job as a cleaner because I'm sanitizing everything I say so you can accept it. I haven't told you this because you won't believe me. That one hit me really, really hard because I used to have that feeling when I had contact with my mom. I would find myself getting anxious on the phone with her because it would be like, almost like sharing. It was like I had to take anything that 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 could be batted at off of what I was sharing because it was so agonizing having something picked apart. No, and it's not like it, she would pick it apart in a hostile way. Occasionally she would, but a lot of times it was just her being kind of a know-it-all or, um, um, you know, various ways of letting me know that I, that I don't know. And I hate that I also have that quality. And when I find myself doing it, I, it makes me sick. Um, but I identify with that and I want to let you know that you are not alone. And you deserve people in your life that you don't have to sanitize things for. People who accept you as you are and aren't trying to change you or make you look stupid. And I don't believe that your mother is probably consciously trying to do those things. It's probably her sick way of, you know, trying to prepare you for the world. Um, and, but that does not excuse it and you should not accept it. And because you deserve better. And I deserve better, and that's one of the reasons why I don't have contact with with my mom. And it still hurts, because there are parts of her that were and are great. And I, that's one of the things that, that sucks. And I do still have, um, I do still love her. 
I just have to do it from, uh, from a distance. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself always moving forward about his love addiction. He writes, if she would just comfort me and pay me more attention, then my life would be fine. Oh my God, that's so good. About his sex addiction, uh, to go too long without a hit is like having a volcano slowly erupting inside me and I might explode. So I masturbate to porn and the volcano goes away. That is, that is so dead on. Uh, about codependency, it's up to me to keep my wife happy. Uh, being a sex crime victim, I must be a monster because I went back to my abusers and asked for more. Thank you for that. Um, and then snapshot from his life. When I get around my mom, I feel like she sucks the life out of me. When she text, texts me that she loves me and misses me, it feels repulsive to me. Why do I feel this way? I don't think she ever touched me or even did what Paul calls covert incest. I think I've been a victim of emotional incest, but I don't know what happened. Maybe I've repressed the memories. I usually end up going on a pornography binge after I'm forced to be around her, like for the holidays. I hate all the holidays, such as Christmas, Thanksgiving or Easter, where we are expected to be with family. I've just, I've started just not responding to her text, but it makes me feel like a piece of shit. She just wants love. And why am I so cruel to her to withhold my love? You know, I, here are some guesses that it's always about you fulfilling her needs and not about her being aware of what it is that you want, be it the way that she talks to you, you know, flirtatiously or like a spouse or, but if you don't bring these things up with her, there is, there is no potential of your relationship with her ever changing. Um, and to stay in that relationship with her, not address it and keep using, um, Porn as a coping mechanism is is you are shortchanging yourself. You are um, probably going to struggle in intimate relationships with women or partners, um, and probably even in platonic relationships, because the bar has been set so low for what you think you deserve and you are worthy of. That is one of the ripples of emotional incest is the the child grows up into an adult not even realizing that the prison door is open. We're so afraid that the warden is going to be upset that we want to see outside of the prison. We believe that life is easier staying in the prison cell because then nobody gets upset. But guess what? Our lives get small and sad and we think about suicide and we all our thinking becomes black and white and we withdraw and we hate ourselves and it feeds our depression and our anxiety. There are so many people out there who will love you in a healthy way. Your mom, it's probably her way of trying to love you, but she is clearly not conscious of the fact that she is committing emotional incest. And I know what it feels like to have a mother 
drink you in with her eyes. It is, it makes my skin crawl. And also there's a voice in my head that says, you're a bad son because there are people who get beaten and you should be happy that your mom is smiling and paying attention to you. But you know what? There's good attention and there's bad attention. Good attention is where they are paying attention to you, but there is at least a consciousness about your emotional needs. And it doesn't sound like there is one. Because if she wasn't wrapped up in you filling her needs, she would be able to pay attention to your body language. Um, I have the feeling that your mother is the type of person that you can say, hey, you know, would you not do that? Would you not do this? And it's not going to sink in very easily. And um, I, I think getting into a support group or going to therapy um, with somebody who has expertise in this uh, I highly recommend the book Silently Seduced. If you haven't read that, check it out. It, it helped change my life and some support groups that I go to for intimacy disorders, <clears throat> especially with sex and uh, and love. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by, by Brian. My voice almost feels like this would be a good time for a uh, mean DJ voice to make an appearance, but um, I don't know if I really want to deal with him. Uh, Brian writes about uh, his OCD. My brain feels impossibly cluttered sometimes. The only guaranteed moments of silence exist in the mundane ordering of my surroundings. Thank you for that. There is... um, It's amazing what we will do to experience silence. Um, Silence can be so... It's hard to know sometimes when it's healthy silence or it's unhealthy silence because I fucking love silence. And uh, I have trouble sometimes knowing, am I isolating or am I just, um, you know, having, I don't know what the word would be, um, time for self. I don't, know. I don't think that was a big enough pause. Paul, you're being hard on yourself. I don't think you're being hard on Oh, mean DJ. Wow, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said your name. You say my name, baby, I come running. Rocking the quad cities. Ever told you Paul's a fucking big piece of shit? Yes, you've told us many, many times, and it's getting a little old. It's Christmas. Can you leave me alone? You know it's hard for me to have fun on Christmas. That's right, your old man tried to take his life. <laughs> Everybody in your life wants to leave you, Paul. Wow, that is, that's that's a low blow. Oh yeah, I like getting blown. Wow, you are, you're like the worst disc jockey ever. Your voice is phony, your dick jokes are fucking lame. I learned from the best. You, you would bet you, fuck you. Fuck you. Feliz Navidad, motherfucker. I don't... This is a strike. (laughs) 
if you had shown me video of this when I was a kid, this is what I would be doing. 30 years in the future, 40 years in the future, I, uh, <laughs> I would have been excited and horrified at the same time. Uh, this guy calls himself an unfortunate existence. And um, about his depression, he writes, Sometimes the toilet is too fucking far and you just have to pee in the sink. Uh, I was kind of half asleep one time and caught myself, I wasn't sleepwalking, caught myself starting to pee in the garbage can. And like like just a tiny, tiny bit got in there. And then I just started laughing and whizzed all over the kitchen floor. No, I didn't. Uh, snapshot from his life. I remember when I was eight years old unloading the dishwasher, feeling overwhelmed by dread. I was putting away the steak knives when I thought about plunging one right into my stomach because if I died, I wouldn't have to do the dishes anymore. This was my first thought of suicide. Boy, do we get that one. Do we get that one. Towards the last couple of months of um, my drinking and using, I would walk past dishes in the sink and think to myself, I will put a shotgun in my mouth before I touch those. It, it felt that, in, it was, looked like a Mount Everest. And um, it is no way to live. It is no way to live. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Crazy Rat Lady. I'm a fan right away. You had me at rat. Uh, she's bisexual, in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I have a very vague memory of having to get in bed with my uncle in the middle of the day while my grandmother was babysitting me. I know this happened several times. I think I had to take... Uh, my pants off before getting in bed. The only other thing that I remember is music playing on the stereo and the drawn curtains on the window that blocked out all the light. I also remember seeing my uncle's belly hair and thinking that the growth pattern makes it look like a dinosaur. Always felt sort of uneasy around my uncle too. No actual memories of actual abuse, just suspicious circumstances, so I don't know what the fuck went on. I was around four to five at the time. Also, lots of emotional incest with mom. We slept in the same bed until I was a teenager. Made me massage her on a regular basis, and she would take her top off, and I would sit on her ass to massage her back. Was her confidant, therapist, marriage counselor, friend, mom. Mom entering the bathroom while I was showering or using the toilet. Her going to the bathroom or loading the washing machine while I was showering. Us going in the same stall in public bathrooms until my mid-teenage years. Her slapping my butt and laughing on many occasions even after I expressed that I don't like it. Calling me sexy, complimenting my boobs, legs, waist, figure. Even as a very young girl, peeking while I was in the changing room at a store even though I asked her not to, always walking in on me while I was changing, was pressured into never locking the bathroom door so she had free access, had no bedroom door lock. Oh, and she tends to wear really short dresses when she's at home and always sits with her legs wide open on the sofa exposing her panties and often holds her hand over her vagina. 
It makes me feel so gross. Oh, and a teacher rubbed my ass when I was 12 or 13. You are so not alone in what you described. It is textbook covert incest by a mother. I cannot tell you how many people I know who have experienced this almost to a T. And um, anybody who relates to what she wrote, um, I have some information and I would like to actually get your contact information because, uh, as I've said, I want to write a book about this. And um, the more stories I can draw upon, um, the the better. And I also know of a, a support group for those of us, <clears throat> an online support group for those of us with <clears throat> moms like that. If you haven't listened to the uh, Meredith uh, M episode, listen to that because she has a mom just like that as well. Um, any positive experiences? Um, Oh, uh, ever been physically or emotionally abused? In a nutshell, textbook emotional incest with mom and a narcissistic maternal grandmother. I was never able to be a carefree child. I always had to put the emotional needs of my mother before anything. Oh, and my older brother, uh, who was a scapegoat. I was the golden child. Uh, and that happens a lot. The, the golden child pays a price because they usually don't know that they are having their needs sucked out of them into the needs of the parent and um, that's the price um, but he always disguised oh he used to torment me when I was little but he always disguised it as a game and therefore I willingly said yes to participation even when I knew what it would entail um, uh, and there's just a lot of you know uh, sticking her hand in the toilet sneezing in his face if he had a cold um, putting a head over her pillow until she panicked. Um, yeah. Um, one of uh, my brother's nicknames for me was basically some variety of squealing pig. Mom sort of encouraged this behavior. Sometimes she would gang up with him and they would jokingly, quote, jokingly berate me. That seemed like one of the few ways she bonded with him. Later, when I asked her why she said those things to me, She'd say she was only joking, didn't mean it, and I should know that. What a narcissist. Incapable of taking responsibility for her actions. And again, not being interested in your needs. Her need is to maintain the image of herself as a mother who is invested in her child. And she doesn't want to look at the ways that she invests her energy in your relationship and she's not a, I'm not saying she's a bad person. I'm saying she's a sick person. And <clears throat> um, that is another textbook thing is, you know, my mom would say something really mean and cutting and I would say it and she would say, oh, well, I was only joking. And I would say, okay, well then show me where the joke is because I don't see a joke. I just see something mean. There is a meanness beneath covert incest that the perpetrator is so masterful at hiding with a smile and a pleasant voice. But make no mistake, beneath it is rage and narcissism. 
Any positive experiences with the abusers? With Grandma, not really. My fondest memories of her were when she took me to the local cemetery for walks and told me life stories about the dead people who were buried there. I love that. That's like an awful moment right there. That Oh, cemetery. <laughs> the place where I felt safe and seen. Um... With my mom, yes, many. She was my best friend. That is usually such a huge red flag to me when somebody refers to their parent as their best friend. Um, uh, Mom, yes, many. She was my best friend until I knew better and realized what was really going on my whole life. She was very supportive of my ambitions, wasn't strict. We used to talk a lot and for a long time. We used to, to travel together sometimes. She would tell the best nighttime stories that she made up on the spot. Uh, she had gave me lots of pets and sparked my love for animals. She could time, sometimes be very fierce in getting my bullies uh, to back off or if she saw someone mistreating an animal. We used to do a lot of stuff together and I really loved her. Nowadays, I can barely stand to be around her or talk to her. That's how angry and resentful I feel. She keeps asking me why we don't really communicate anymore and I keep avoiding the true reasons. I want her to tell her I want to tell her everything, but I'm too afraid to do so. Yeah, it's complicated, all right. Here's a suggestion. Send her the book, Silently Seduced, and tell her that you don't want to have contact with her until she has read the book and is is willing to meet you in joint therapy together. And that that is the only way that you can see her because right now you are suffering and you know that it's feels like it's coming out of left field to her and you understand it's probably upsetting to her. But if she truly loves you, you need this for your mental and emotional health and it would mean a lot to you. Just a suggestion. Darkest thoughts, very fucked up sexual stuff, including but not limited to rape fantasies and females being treated like nothing but fuckholes. Other fucked up sexual stuff too, but I'm too ashamed to type it out because of how taboo it is. I know, uh, I know, I know you will say this is common and normal for victims to have these fantasies, but that doesn't help me feel any less shame. Uh, darkest secrets. Compulsive overeating. I just ate an entire huge pizza, a bag of candy, and a whole pack of mini muffins. My stomach is so full that I can barely move and it actually really hurts. Hiding it from my boyfriend and keeping secret stashes of candy. Quite a change from when I was a teenager and starved myself for three years. Also, started masturbating a lot when I was seven, sometimes to the point where my vulva would feel raw. Once I did it with my parents in the room under a blanket until I reached an orgasm. They questioned me but didn't know I was masturbating, I hope. Whenever I think of this, I want to dive headfirst into the world's largest pile of sand and never come out again. WTF! You were raised in a sexualized environment. What child wouldn't have absorbed that? Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, oh, forgot there was a second page. Um, yeah. Um, what if anything would like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to apologize to my friends for repeatedly ghosting them. 
that's another thing that healing can really help with is social anxiety, fear of commitment, fear of responsibility. Because when, when we grow up responsible for our caregivers' emotional feeding, who the fuck wouldn't be terrified of friendships and intimate relationships? When our very template is one that is overwhelming, confusing, shaming, manipulating, makes our skin crawl, um, but occasionally gives us something that feeds us, fuck. That's like a horrible funhouse ride. Uh, have you shared these things with others? Everything but the fucked up secret sexual fantasy part with my therapist. A lot of this stuff with my boyfriend went really well with both of them. It's nice to be accepted. Good for you, man. High fucking five. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? There is a vague paranoia that someday, somewhere, someone will deliberately go through my entire browsing history ever Find this and expose it for the whole world to see. Then I will be disgraced for how fucked up I am and the entire world will reject me. I will have to move to some remote cabin in the woods and pick berries for survival or end up in jail or both or commit suicide. How about all three? Uh, there is no way this could possibly end well for me, but still I keep on filling out those surveys. <laughs> That's how far I'll go to sabotage myself in my future. And now that I've admitted this, it's even more likely that it will happen. Someone, somewhere, sometime will think, what a dumb, crazy bitch, and go out of their way to expose me and make sure a freak like me is isolated from society. That being said, I really hope you will read this survey on air and comment on it. Is that narcissistic? Further proof of how crazy I am. No, it is not narcissistic. It is you wanting to be seen, heard, felt, understood, and validated. And I know that feeling. It's like just the thirstiest feeling in the world. Because you have not been fed in your home, the way a child should be fed emotionally. And you're not crazy. This, I, everything you described, this is my story if I, if I was born female. So, you're not alone. You're not alone. And I hope you get to hear me read that. Oh, be hit it, be. Fuck off. He must have a key to my new place. I don't know how he keeps getting in. And he's dressed as Santa. That's the other thing I should mention. And he's got soup in his beard. I think he's drunk. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by Switchblades and Cocaine. I like that name. Um, and he's 15. Now I don't like the name. Uh, on November 15th, a little peep died after a Xanax overdose. He was my hero. He wrote music that spoke to me and a lot of other people who struggle with depression and other things that fuck up their lives. After his death, I cried for two days and I considered overdosing as well. I lost the only thing that gave me hope and a will to live. As I cried, my phone somehow started playing the episode with Paul Goebel and I realized that if I died, people would miss me as much as I missed Peep. After this epiphany, I went downstairs and my mom asked, Did you hear that that rapper Little Deep died? 
I really wanted to cry, but then I realized that my mom was so cringy and funny sometimes, and that was a reason enough for me to live. Love the podcast, Paul. Keep it up. Thank you, man. That made my day. That made my day. And uh, I'll be sure to pass that on to, to Paul Goble. I know he would be very touched to, to know that that, uh, that helped you. And uh, this is a happy moment filled out by uh, gas, gas lighting fireplace. Um, and he writes uh, his happy moment during one of my, this is, I think this is an awful moment, but during one of my stays at the Wacko Basket, I love that. I love that. I've never heard it called a wacko basket. An absolute angel of a patient found the remote and switched the television channel from People's Court to Zombie Land. <laughs> Fucking awesome. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by O, who is a uh, trans male. And he writes, I'm trans, and not long after I transitioned, I attended my father's wedding to his second wife. The ceremony was performed by a longtime friend of my father who remembered enough about my siblings and I to ask my father, don't you have two boys and two girls? My father gestured at me and replied incredulously, you think that one's a boy? It was a moment that confirmed my father would never accept me as a son, still true after 14 years, but at least I passed as a guy. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, let's see. I think I'm going to have to cut cut to the chase and um, go to the last two surveys because I don't think my voice can take any more. I always bite off more than I can chew. There are, you know, if I never read your surveys, it is not because it is not a good survey. There are so many surveys that I don't get to read because there are just too many too many good ones. Um, is that me being a little too codependent? This is an awful moment filled out by uh, irrationally pissed at Christmas music. Oh, there's nothing irrational about it at all. Um, due to my father's cutting me off uh, from my college fund prematurely, I'm going to be spending Christmas moving into a tiny room in one of my friend's parents' houses. I will be paying rent, so I'm not freeloading, but I can't help but be nervous. Yesterday, I asked her what the rules of the house were. I was thinking along the lines of don't flush the toilet after 7 p.m., no playing music without headphones, no food in the rooms, no opening the fridge without permission, absolutely no shoes inside the house, only use one dish per meal, the sort of thing I'd come to expect growing up. Her response was, I don't know, don't be a dick, I guess. Don't leave your socks lying around. I responded, no, 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 no. Not the rules, but the rules. She thought hard for a minute, then said, my dad loves chocolate cake, so if you buy some, you should offer him a piece. That one just really got to me because it, so highlights the peace in somebody that was raised in what seems like a good environment and just the pain of somebody that wasn't. I know that's obvious, but it, it I don't know, I, f I felt like I had shot up. Oh no, do go on. 
This is a happy moment. This is our last one filled out by, thank God. Listen, I don't care for you interrupting me. This is a happy moment filled out by Coffee in the Morning. Boarding zoo, coffee in the morning, cup of tea from the quad zoo, screaming downtown with the river van, rockets, and to the overdrive. You are such a fucking cock face. Is that a new word, cock face? No, no, no. If it isn't, it should be. <laughs> coffee in the Morning writes his happy moment. Uh, my wife went out of town overnight with some friends, and I was left to take care of our three daughters, which is usually no big deal. However, everything happened to create the perfect storm. My oldest daughter was freaking out and refusing to go to school because she's struggling with depression. My middle daughter had all this math homework I needed to help her with. Then my wife texted that the stuff that had been sold as a fundraiser at school needed to be all delivered that night. I was going over the list and some of it was missing. To top it off, I was over the top busy at work and I had just lost a big sale. This only partially describes what all happens, but in short, I was overwhelmed and it was a recipe for me to just shut down and withdraw and act out with pornography. However, I was happy to watch myself remain present. I didn't act out. I took some deep breaths and worked through my problems one at a time and I came out with a smile on my face. So thankful for EMDR therapy. I've been doing it, and it is quietly making a difference. That is so awesome, man. That is so awesome. Thank you. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's like Christmas for me when you guys share. <coughs> Excuse me. When you guys share that you're on the path to recovery, no matter how stumbly or imperfect or ungraceful it is, because that's usually how it looks. That's how it's looked for me, man, is really, really um, awkward, um, circuitous. Uh, I kind of hate myself for just using the word circuitous, but I also kind of like myself because I feel like a smarty pants. Um, anyway, um, be good to yourself. Uh, never forget that you're not alone. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.